Kiefer's a guy who's doing his part to talk about why he thinks that games are art and gush over things that are near to our hearts. So let's select a game and press start. Hello and welcome to Select and Start, the podcast about meaningful and memorable video games. I'm your host, Kiefer, and every episode I bring on a guest to talk about a video game that made an impact on their life. My guest today is the creator of the podcast Additional Postage Required, a bi-weekly audio drama series about a courier delivering packages in space, as well as one of the hosts of Champs in the Making, a Pokemon Bracket podcast, both of which are part of the Moonshot Network. It's Jay. Jay, how are you today? Hello, I'm so thrilled to be here after uh, hearing you whip out the interviewing chops for so many great people to talk about their favorite games. I find myself in the seat here and I'm very happy to be here. How are you, Kiefer? I'm doing great. It's been hell of a couple weeks uh, with <laughs> job stuff going on here, but I will never stop doing this show because I genuinely love it so much. Just the stuff that's worth putting in the work for. And I'm happy to talk to you today about such a wonderful video game. I was going to say, a busy couple of weeks. I don't know if you want to talk about this on the air. Busy day. You've had your Twitter suspended earlier today as we're recording this. Yeah, as of right now, my Twitter is suspended <laughs> at Danny Vegito RIP. We will figure out what that means for the future of the promotion of the show on a, on a social media level. I'm making an appeal now. Yeah, word of advice to our listeners, if Twitter still exists uh, when this episode comes out, do not block too many blue check people at once because Twitter gets mad at you and suspends you for it. That's my leading theory, at least, as of this recording. They don't like when you do that. They don't they like don't... when you rock the vote. Yeah. Oh, well, we'll see. Uh, pending on that, we've got a really exciting game to talk about today. Before we get into that, I want to give the listeners an opportunity to get to know you a little better, Jay. What do you do and what do you like? Sure. Uh, what I do, you, you mentioned at the top, I am a podcaster by uh, outside of 40 hours a week trade by time theft trade, as we call it. Uh, mm. I make additional posts required. The show you mentioned, the audio drama that is the hardest I've probably worked on anything in my life. Uh, I do a lot of other stuff for Moonshot. On you mentioned Champs in the Making. I do a lot of work with our Patreon stuff in general. I'm on our movie podcast and I, I edit our movie podcast a lot. Outside of that, I work in local news for a day job, which is not particularly glamorous, but uh, to, to talk about in this context, we, we have never had any uh, enormous gaming related stories up here in my neck of the woods. But um, yeah, I, 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 I am a podcaster, writer. Uh, what else? What else to say there? I don't know. Person who hopes to one day successfully take a nap. I, I get I busy myself with a lot of things at any given time. No, yeah, uh, perpetual insomniac here. I'm tired all the time. It shows, but I, I, I yep. try my best to power through it. You mentioned, you know, editing the movie podcast. What movies do you personally like? Oh, boy. Uh, so I'm a huge animation nerd. This will honestly, this will like come up a little bit in talking about like my history with gaming, too, is just like when I was a kid, I picked up Castle in the Sky by Hayao Miyazaki from my local library and kind of never looked back. Like I've been a big animation head my entire life. I love like Summer Wars is a huge all timer. Some other Ghibli stuff is all, all timers. There are uh, blah, 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 Mad God from last year, the stop mm. motion animated movie with a like 30 year tale on getting made. I'm probably wrong on that year count, but it was over a lot of years. Fascinated by that industry stuff from the last couple of years. I have not watched a lot of movies this year, mm. but uh, when people ask me for my movie tastes, I have to like be like, all right, 
If I tell you that my favorite movie of last year was Drive My Car, a, a sad three-hour movie based on a really depressing Haruki Murakami short story, will you understand what I'm talking about or think I'm strange because I didn't say, you know, something a little more exciting and pop? But um, I, I, I don't know. I, I like a lot of art movies. I like a lot of stuff from, uh, I guess, a pretty... I, I grew up with a group of friends who would get together and do movie nights whenever it was someone's birthday. And so ever since I was pretty young, we had eclectic tastes. Then I was watching, Mm -hmm. you know, indie horror movies from Germany when I was 13. And so to do that then and be reflecting on my, my movie tastes now, I'm like, yeah, I've, I don't know. I guess I've just been around the block a bit is the way I would describe that. No. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've really fallen into the movie hole in the last half decade or so uh letterbox obviously you know word with a lot of baggage to it i use it as a diary <laughs> i use it to keep track of my movies and it's been great for that over the last half decade when i started that beginning of 2018 because i had the resolution of like oh i'd like to watch a movie a week and that has since evolved into me watching over 200 movies a year which still isn't like the most i've ever seen of anybody i've seen people who were like oh i've watched 400 600 kind of like okay yeah that's that's cool i work i have a podcast i have <laughs> yeah. friends i have you know things to do Video games, especially Uh, you play a 20 hour video game. That's like 10 movies immediately that you could have watched that you didn't. Mm -hmm. That's why I like video games. It like that's what that's what makes it so unique as its own medium besides the whole time commitment to it. But like how our relationship with time just varies between like a movie, TV show and whole ass video game. Yeah, yeah. I've been watching Succession really recently. Uh, I just finished watching Succession for the first time. Incredible show earlier this week. Great show. Incredible. (laughs) Uh, Like fabulous, obviously. But um. That it's that time sync thing, right? Of oh, I'm not going to commit to a two hour movie. I will instead commit to two hour long episodes of this and see what Kendall and Shiv and everyone are up to. Just because in your head, it is it is magically a very different thing when chronologically it's not. Yeah, and I was like that for years. But when I rewired my brain to be so movie oriented, um, that really just alter things a bit because now when i watch like an hour-long tv show and it's especially changed because now that streaming shows are really trying to like push past like the traditional like 22 minute 44 minute and hbo like pushing past the hour like i start thinking like when i'm watching a two-hour finale of stranger things i'm like i could have watched like a whole movie i could have (laughs) watched i could have watched a movie yeah and like i love succession i love succession so much and a lot of longer tv shows are perfectly great i love that but it's just sort of like interesting, like when I start prioritizing movies over TV shows, like the opposite becomes true, where, like you said, like I will sink three hours into a, a TV show, but a two hour movie sounds like a lot. Yeah. What was that? Was that a focus a COVID thing for you? Because it was a COVID thing for me. Or mm-hmm. I, I similarly was not that much a movie person for like a lot of my life, really. And then COVID and having a friend who was really into movies who I was just talking to a lot in early COVID, really like I got on Letterboxd. I started revisiting a lot of stuff. My friend had a Criterion channel subscription, so I got on mm-hmm. there and just really exploring a lot. I got into the Blank Check podcast, like yeah. just immersed myself entirely all at once. Yeah, I'm like halfway through a bunch of Buster Keaton films because of Blank Check at the moment. Um, Griffin, come on the show anytime you want. David, come on the show anytime you want. Anyway. Oh, also, I'm sorry. I saw about animation. Spider-Verse, obviously. Spider- new Spider-Verse. Incredible. Last movie I've seen. Yeah, very amazing movie. I, Please proceed. I just realized I had to, you know, get that out there. No, I get it. And I let's make this a movie podcast instead. Yeah! I, was burnt, I was burnt out on superhero films but spider-verse really just like bam you know what there are still good multiverse stories bam you know what there are still good superhero stories great stuff love it yeah i love drive my car the the murakami adaptation you're just talking about that was uh my favorite of the year it's like that the green knight 
uh, Pig and Dune, like all like mm-hmm. kissing and making out with each other as like my top four. <laughs> that's, that's a weird blunt rotation. <laughs> yeah, no, completely different t- tones and vibes. Maybe sad. Sad, I think, is yeah. It's like a shoegaze blunt group. <laughs> Timothy Chalamet's like, I got a free Arrakis. And the guy from Drive My Car is just like, I miss my wife. <laughs> yeah, when uh, Paul Atreides is like the happiest person in that blunt rotation, you probably got a problem. That's a weird room to be in. Yeah, but that's film. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go into what this podcast is about. <laughs> and I you know, appreciate having you on the show to talk about an incredible game with me, especially during a very important holiday, Independence Day. It is the holiday where we celebrate indie games and no other holiday. It is a holiday that I am celebrating about independent video games developed by smaller teams that don't have the resources or support that larger studios offer. Though they are small, they are tremendous, and we want to celebrate their independence. And as small as they may seem, their accomplishments cannot fit into one meager podcast episode which is why we're going to be celebrating not just Independence Day on the 4th of July when this episode comes out, but all month long. We are celebrating Independence Month. Say goodbye, Pride Month. Say good lesbian and good gay and good trans (laughs) and good plus. And say (laughs) hell yeah to Independence Month. Hell yeah. (laughs) Here at Select and Start, We are going to cover indie games all month long, which, mind you, is only two episodes because we're on a bi-weekly release schedule. But goddammit, during those two episodes, we're going to be talking about indie games a lot. But before we talk about indie games, we have to get to know our guests a little bit better in terms of their taste in actual video games in a broad sense. As we know, no community in the world likes to gatekeep more than the gamers. So we have to check your gaming credentials here at the top. Let's talk about your gaming history, who or what got you into it, your relationship with that throughout the years, and so on. Kiefer, you ever hear this motherfucker named Pikachu? Yeah, there goes me money. <laughs> yeah, me too. Hey, you know what? Me too. Uh, so no, so I, my, my relationship with gaming, um, I am an only child of kind of older parents. And what that means for me is that I grew up with parents who had a lot of opinions about how people they knew raised their kids. And so I, I grew up with parents who, that makes them sound way stricter. Like that I say that and I'm like, oh no, I just made them sound really bad. But, but like what that meant in a lot of ways is they were a little wary of like too much screen time. They, they didn't want me like being just in front of the TV all day, whatever. They, they knew people who did let their kids do that and didn't want that. I think that's reasonable. I see kids who are five years old and know how to use their parents' iPads. And I think we took a very wrong turn somewhere in (laughs) life. So I get it. But what got me into gaming was, like I said, Pikachu, the nefarious yellow rodent, but through Pikachu, Pikachu worked through uh, my cousins. I, uh, Mm. I, I was also, you know, I'm, I'm also the youngest of all of my cousins because I'm a kid of older parents. And I had three cousins uh, who I saw pretty regularly. They lived out of state, but not super far. It'd be like a couple times a year. We'd see them. When I was five or six, I, I was trying to think about this earlier. I think five or six, I was at Christmas there. We had Christmas at their house. All three of them, if I'm six, the youngest of them is probably eight. All three of them got Game Boys and copies of Pokemon for Christmas all at once. And uh, that was kind of that. Like, I, you know, th- these were kids who I kind of looked up as like, you know, like surrogate siblings a little bit. I, I love them to pieces to this day. We're all really close. 
but that whole day, I couldn't tell you what I got for Christmas that Christmas. <laughs> One, because I'm six or whatever, but two, because like I was so fixated on my three cousins all having th- these these handheld machines that little animals were inside of and they were catching them and fighting with them. And that was the most exciting thing in the world to me. In my head, this is a very short, like weeks, like a couple weeks later, I'm back home. I turn on the TV. I don't know how I even wandered off of PBS Kids, the channel my parents wanted me to be watching. Mm-hmm. But I wound up catching my first episode of Pokemon, uh, which was the Island of Giant Pokemon episode with like, <laughs> the, you know, the giant Zapdos and like all the, the Pokemon being lost and everything. And that just rocked my whole shit uh, in a way that I've never recovered from 20 sure. years later, you know? And so I very quickly started campaigning to get a Game Boy. And my parents very quickly were like, no, uh, you're six years old or however old you were. And uh, that went on for a couple of years. I, you know, in the meantime, I am getting into Pokemon hardcore. I am collecting the cards. I have toys. I'm drawing Pokemon all the time. I had the uh, like original Pokedex book that had like lists of attacks that Pokemon could learn, but not really a lot of like hard game data. It was kind of Mm -hmm. like in the middle between being for anime show fans and game fans. Uh, I had the second version of that that they printed just so they could add Mew and Togepi to it, which was wild in retrospect. <laughs> the capitalists are at it again. <laughs> Shut the doors. I credit Pokemon to being the like root that gets me to a lot of my interests. Like to this day, like, you know, they, a lot of things lead back to being extremely hyper fixated on Pokemon when I was a little kid. Um, and when I was eight years old, I finally, my parents relented uh, and took me to Game Crazy, the uh, Hollywood video gaming spinoff store, to get a Game Boy Advance and a copy of Pokemon Sapphire. And uh, I was a handheld only gamer for quite a few years. Like I, I was just like, you know, I, I wasn't clamoring for a, uh, was a GameCube out at that point, I guess. Like a 64 or a GameCube, I was just clamoring for a Game Boy Advance. Friends I knew my same age started getting a Game Boy Advance when my parents thought I was still too young to be trusted with a portable screen to stare at all day Mm -hmm. but eventually i i got that and i was very much part of the like used game trade economy of game crazy i don't know if you were big on this but i would whenever my parents would go to hollywood video i would just run over the game crazy and like pull my allowance out of my pocket and trade you know trade in Mega Man battle network 3 for the incredibles the game for game boy advance or whatever decision yeah, no, I was extorted a lot of money out of GameStop as a kid making bad trades. Um, if I could go back in time and do anything, it'd be ring my neck for selling those uh, Game Boy Advance versions of uh, the Pokemon games because mm. those are number one. They're worth they're, they're worth more than their weight in gold at this point, uh-huh. and uh, there's just you know incredible cartridges and experiences to have. I would do anything to have them back. I still have my Game Boy Advance SP even like right here in my desk, but I only have Pokemon Silver for it. But no, you talked about like, you know, the uh, extortion economy of like uh, Pokemon in terms of like releasing another edition just to have like two more data. Isn't that Pokemon all the time, though, Ever, like releasing a third version of a game with minor differences? And, you know, we can hand ring about it all we want. It is like minor adjustments at the end of the day for a full price. And look, yeah, bought it every time. Yep. Every single time. <laughs> yep. And now they've relented to just doing DLC, which is like almost more. I hate to call DLC more ethical than something else, but it kind of is. In that case, I feel like even though Pokemon Emerald is like my favorite video, not to jump ahead for your stuff there, but like some of the third versions are my favorite games. But absolutely, it's just like, well, why didn't you put that in the original versions at that point? No, let's, than- let's let's continue on that train of thought. You said your favorite Pokemon game is Emerald then? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Emerald is an incredible piece of work. I, I love the way it handles things like double battles being something you can kind of wander into or game your way around. I love, uh, th there's just a lot of little tweaks about it. The Battle Frontier was a huge thing for me as a kid where I, you know, went there for the first time after beating the Elite Four and the Champion. You, you know, surmount the final mountain that you're supposed to cross in a Pokemon game. And then you enter this place where everything you've done kind of feels useless and point like, like it doesn't apply almost. The challenges in the Battle Frontier are so different and specific and I didn't know this at the time, but like I didn't know what EV training was, but if I had known that it would have allowed me to uh, succeed. I was also the kind of kid at this point who used just my starter Pokemon and a legendary when I went through <laughs> Pokemon games. So I was not exactly equipped to bring a full team anywhere for anything. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just, Emerald, the Hoenn region is my favorite conceptually. I think it's seven out of 10, not enough water is what I'm saying. I, I, I love the way it's constructed. I like the way parts of it loop in on itself. And I think, you know, that's true in Ruby and Sapphire as well as, as Emerald, obviously. But like, I think it is just a really like elegantly constructed little Fibonacci spiral of a thing mm. uh, that you kind of spiral out of rather than into. And I, I, I just will never really get tired of what it feels like to go through it. Sure. No, that's a great explanation for why you love Emerald so much. Obviously, we talked about it with uh, Avery, the, the person who did the art for the show in a previous episode. Um, and there's still like so many things we didn't get to talk about there. So I appreciate you getting your perspective in terms of like the actual design of the region and uh, your relationship with the Battle Frontier and everything like that. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I don't wind up getting a home console until I'm 13, hmm. uh, at which point the Wii is out. I have looped back around now at 28 to being a PC and Nintendo gamer. Like I built a new computer last year, got Game Pass for it. And now I'm really just that and Switch a lot of the time. All those years ago, I was my parents' Windows XP computer and the Wii and my Game Boy Advance and DS. Mm -hmm. Like it, it's funny how these things loop back around. So I'm playing the Wii. I'm playing Team Fortress 2 and Portal and stuff on PC. I was a big TF2 head for a while. Hell Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah, I was because I, I remember you saying on some recent episode that you still have that downloaded on your computer. Still right, right there. I got to clear it up because I'm taking a lot of space too in like these episodes at keeping the masters. Yeah, that's let me tell you, when I built this computer, uh, having a separate hard drive for podcasts and a separate one for games was a genius move that I was very luckily able to make money wise. Yeah, I'm going to get a hard drive or something soon because I thought I thought, you know, Audio takes up a lot. That's why video game file sizes are massive. It's because Square Enix is like, we're going to put uncompressed audio of every language that's ever existed in a Final Fantasy game. And that's why this thing's like 200 billion gajillion <laughs> gigabytes. And you can only have one game on your PlayStation 5. Yeah. What, what is it? The Sonic 1 like menu music takes up like two thirds of the game cartridge or something like that. <laughs> the, the, or the opening title theme and animation, something like that. Um, but yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, no. So, I, you know, I do that. I get my DS, uh, my my. You were talking about uh, the value of Pokemon games. My DS Lite that I had got stolen when I was 14 out of a gas station bathroom. And uh, I lost like my copy of Leaf Green and Emerald and some other GBA games, some of which I've, and DS games, some of which I still haven't uh, replaced. I've never, I, I do not legally own a copy of Emerald, my favorite video game, and haven't since I was 14, literally half my life. When I was 17, I, I don't know if I, if I mentioned this to you uh, when we were talking about doing this, but it, it's a fun fact. I did game journalism for like five years, uh, starting oh, yeah. when I was 17. I wrote some articles for the website for It's Super Effective, which is a Pokemon podcast. Uh, I'm like 15 and I'm writing about like why, like what the fossil Pokemon are based off of in real life, stuff like that. I wrote a serialized fan fiction for there. And then I go from there to uh, writing for a game site uh, called HeyPoorPlayer.com. I haven't done anything with them in a lot of years, but they're still around. I, at this point in time, really wanted to like 
end up in game journalism professionally, uh, which is no longer really a goal. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but um, at the time, it was something I was really passionate about. And this small retro game site that was just starting out took me on to just write reviews of whatever. I was really like actively following the industry. I was following Project Rainfall a lot at the time. I was following that. I start doing stuff for Hey Poor Player, all just kind of pro bono. I start following a lot of uh, Kickstarter games because this is like right after the Double Fine adventure. Kickstarter gets enormous and Kickstarter really blooms as an avenue for a lot of indie games to get the money they need to make their games for better and for worse. Uh, there's a game I kickstarted in 2012 that still isn't out and is supposedly coming out one day. Uh, we'll see, Radio the Universe, we'll see. But so, you know, I, I'm covering that. I wind up doing like game reviews all through college for this site. And at the end of the day, I sort of burnt out on it after college doing reviews. I, I host their podcast for a while. I have also hosted a gaming podcast, Kiefer. That's right. You're not alone here. Solidarity. <laughs> Solidarity forever is what they say. But yeah, and then... 2018 or yeah early 2018 I, I leave hey poor player i kind of decide that trying for game journalism as a career isn't really for me anymore and honestly wh while i was reviewing games a lot I, I i did over i did like 200 something game reviews in five years um a lot of those were like steam keys we would get so i played a lot of games i didn't necessarily care i, I wouldn't have played otherwise like i want you know i i stuff that just i wouldn't have engaged with some of which i loved and some of which i just felt like why am i putting time into this do I really want to do this that much? Um, after I stop doing that, my relationship with games gets a lot better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I just, you know, start like, I, I start playing longer games in a way I wouldn't have before because when I was playing them while writing for a website, I always felt like there was a need to rush to the next thing a little more, you know, to always be following something new. Then I leave and I play Persona 5, you know, like, like it's a lot of just longer tooth stuff that I feel a little more comfortable to do. I stop, uh, you know, I, I still pay attention to new games coming out, of course, but like, there's I kind of drop a little bit of the need to play everything new, uh, which I think was really good for me because I was like I was getting a little too what's the next thing for a while when I was like in my late teens to early early twenties and now I'm very much just like what do I want to fucking kick back with and have tell me a good story or sort of guide me into uh something that you know in, into a a chill evening a little more than I was back then. No, I mean like it's part of that is just you know the agency of choice. You were a games journalist for years and you like you by red admission, played a lot of stuff that you necessarily weren't necessarily interested in playing. So, you know, your game time is going to stuff that you aren't, you know, as into. Uh, I mean, like I dedicate a lot of time on this podcast playing a lot of games I haven't played before. And since this is a podcast that's talking up people's favorite video games, I haven't missed yet. But I still get the idea of like, this feels like work a little bit because you have to put in that thoughtful mindset. And then like in the terms of zeitgeist, that alone is a lot of work because even if you have time to play all these games, you feel like you're rushed just to like get through a game. Uh, the next game comes out and a new conversation is happening The you know, people have moved on from it. I, I totally get it. Yeah. But it's really just playing older games that I don't feel a rush. I can have my own personal experience with it. I've only played two games released in 2023 so far, and that is Resident Evil 4 Remake and currently playing Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. So I, I, I totally get it. Like, you don't want to feel like you're just playing games to, for the sake of playing them. You want to just play what you want to play. Yeah, absolutely. And not needing to be critical about them in the same way, too. I had a lot of friends of mine in college tell me that I was like, and, you know, some people say this and it just means that, you know, you have opinions about things. But like I was told a lot that I was kind of annoyingly overcritical about any game I played or any movie I watched. And they were right. And I think that was part of why is like I was always like, well, what opinions? You know, I have a lot of strong opinions about any media I absorb, any movie I watch, any book that connects with me, any video game 
positively or negatively, but like letting those emotions be a little more organic rather than feeling like there needs to be some kind of priority to them was a really nice change to go through as a kind of as the 2010s ended there. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing about this format of the show, too, is like anybody can talk shit about something, right? When you're criticizing something, if you are a kind of person has like any modicum of self-awareness, you do have that like little thing barking at the back of your head saying pretentious. pretentious, Yeah, pretentious, yeah, absolutely. Like, absolutely. It's a constant <laughs> battle you have to fight with yourself a little bit. Yeah. So there's like a challenge like doing a show that's mainly about talking about things in a positive light uh, where you have to, you know, use your knowledge of an industry or medium to talk about things in a way that is positive and, you know, frame negative conversations around positive experiences versus just like that urge of being like, well, this is shitty and this specific thing is shitty. Like I did talking about fucking Cowboy Bebop or uh, the Netflix Cowboy Bebop specifically or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. One last thing on history, kind of after I leave game journalism, I wound up doing a YouTube channel for a year in 2019. I tried to be a uh, video game video essayist for a little bit, Mm -hmm. for a hot minute. And uh, what that, and this kind of goes into what we're talking about here with like, not having that same critical eye. I got really into licensed games. Um, uh, behind me on my shelf back there, now that you can see it well, but you have uh, gems such as uh, the Aragon game for the GameCube, the wow. Hobbit game for the GameCube. The, wow. uh, there's a Rocky the Balboa game for the PS2 that I've actually never played. Uh, I, I got really into the idea of doing videos about like weird, li- like whatever you know, PS2 era licensed game I could find at you know a local used game store and try to find some value in and try to find something in. That was kind of a really cool way to re-explore games in a very different way after being so critical about what's new is like try to find what's valuable about not just what's old, but what's old and seemingly worthless. <laughs> like how do you find real value out of Shrek Smash and Crash Racing? Let's find out. Sure. So this is Independence Month, and now we have to check your independence cred. Oh uh, we believe in freedom on this podcast, very specifically the freedom to develop video games independently to realize a truly unique vision that AAA video game studios rarely provide. Uh, so before we proceed, we need to know that you're a freedom fighter. Now, you've alluded to it earlier in your time as a games journalist that you did have a lot of time playing with indie games and you supported a lot of Kickstarters, which was the vector for a lot of independent releases, some very good. Some very unfortunately disappointing, some to be released. So (laughs) to make a long winded lead up to a question, uh, finally, the question, what are some of your favorite indie titles? Yeah, I mean, to to your point, like I distinctly remember that like period of time when like indie games were becoming a thing, right? When like Limbo was new, Bastion was new, like all these early ones. Yeah, Braid, Super Meat Boy. And yeah, I, I think I was on that train pretty early. Uh, I love Supergiant's games. I just mentioned Bastion. I love all four of their games so, so much. I have your, your Hades episode was really good. Uh, I I am a, a Pyre stan. Pyre is kind of low-key my favorite, even though it is kind of the least talked about of the four of them. I think it like has the most bizarre and interesting gameplay pitch where it is kind of, you are a bunch of fantastical people, like creature people in purgatory playing football to escape. Uh, it looks like if Dr. Seuss designed churches is how I always describe <laughs> the design of that game. It looks incredible. It is my favorite sound. I, I love Darren Korb's soundtracks. I own three of them on vinyl. I don't have Hades yet because it's still really hard to get a copy of. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I love his music. I love their art. Enormous Supergiant fan. I really like Celeste. I actually have... Um, 
at the end of this month, or I'm told at the end of this month, I will be getting the Fangamer uh, Celeste Physical Deluxe Edition that they've just made that I pre-ordered back in like January. I, I, I don't often do that. I, I don't often like pre-order the big fancy like special collector's edition of a thing. I saw that one and just went, this feels like one for me. Um, Celeste is really special to me. I love a simple but kind of cutthroat indie platformer like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorite indie games is a game I feel like no one else has played but me called Klaus. Uh, this is a indie game I reviewed for Hey Poor Player. Uh, it was originally a mobile game, which I think is why no one heard of it. We got like the code for the PS4 port of it, and it is a... It has like the level structure of your Super Meat Boys in terms of kind of difficulty and like pinpoint accuracy and storytelling that reminds me a lot of like Thomas Was Alone, another indie game I like where it's a lot of sort of like narrator based ambient storytelling around you as you're moving through levels. Um, that, that's that's a game I really hold dear. I don't know how it holds up. I played it in college, <laughs> but like in my mind, it is still like one of my all time favorites. Other other recent indie games that I really liked. I really loved Spiritfarer back in 2020 that was you know a lot of people like like hades was a big 2020 game uh final fantasy 7 remake the last of us part two there were all these enormous games that year and spirit fairer i feel like is kind of on the b tier in terms of notability and what people remember from that year in games but it it for me was a huge hard hitter um just like it scratches the part of my brain that likes to have a good cry and mm-hmm. it scratches the part of my brain that likes to manage resources for 40 hours. And what's better than that? Yeah, no, I mean, like I am just now getting into Spirit Fair, a game yeah. that completely flew past me. And I'm a guy who's engaged in the gaming community. Uh, I just did not get to interact with it, even though this is like the specific year 2020 when I was like really buying new releases in like with regularity for the first time in forever. I, I bought Hades uh, very like very much like very close to like when it came out, like days after yeah. it came out. But I didn't play Spiritfarer until very recently. You know, yeah, I'm glad that we're talking about it because it is a little bit of a little bit uh, overlooked, but incredible thing. Yeah, uh, their next game just got announced, I think, during the Summer Game Fest stuff. Uh, 30. What? It is a like 33 player multiplayer game. Uh, 33 Ancients. Is that the name of it? Hold on. Under Lotus. What is your game called? Felt like I dreamed it. 33 Immortals uh, is a online. I, I You can do single player stuff, I imagine, but it is mm-hmm. a 33 player online game of some kind that they have just made. How you go from Spiritfarer to that is a little bit beyond me, but I'll be very curious what that is. No, I mean, like they've definitely earned the goodwill for me to buy into an indie developed multiplayer video game. So we'll yeah. see. We'll see how that emerges. Yeah. Any other particular indie titles of note that you want to bring up before we uh, move on to some other questions? Yeah, I know there are, and now I'm spacing on every one of them. I mean, I love Undertale. Everyone loves Undertale, but I, I love Undertale to bits. That was a big game. I have a lot of memories of uh, being a t- an English tutor in college and sitting there during open office hours when no one was coming in and quietly playing through Undertale on my laptop while while getting paid to just sit there and not teach people how uh, mm-hmm. comma splices work. I'm instead doing the dummy fight and getting that ragtime mix of that boss theme stuck in my head for the rest of my life. Big fan of that. I am really excited. The Talos Principle is kind of an indie game, isn't it? I was about to say I'm really excited for the sequel to that. Then I went, wait a minute. I don't know if that's an indie game or not. I would consider it that, yeah. 
Yeah, um, I, I like that a lot. I mentioned I like Portal earlier. That was like the the only like Portal like that really spoke to me in that way. I like roguelikes a lot. I like Dead Cells. Dead Cells was a roguelike that really clicked for me in the right way as someone who like isn't always great at video games. Like, that's the thing. I'm kind of bad at intense combat sometimes. That was a game that made me feel like like that's a game where at the start of every run you have in uh, in the room you start and you have above you on the ceiling all these items that aren't in your rotation yet for runs mm-hmm. in glass jars hanging over you. You see how close you are to getting them. And that kept me motivated so much where other kind of difficult games I'm not very good at would have just, you know, caused me to say, I can't do this. It, it, that really kept me going a lot. I, I like that bit of game design a lot. It's so cruel, but it is also so effective at getting you to keep <laughs> playing a game. Like I, yeah, they're still releasing content for Dead Cells. They won. They won that battle. I love Dead mm-hmm. Cells. Um, I love any kind of roguelike roguelite game. I could never really get into Binding of Isaac specifically because of like, I talked about the art style, but like games that are almost exactly like that. No problem. Yeah. Uh, you yep. know, Hades is, you know, one of my top 10 favorite games ever. I love the Risk of Rain series one and two. When I was really getting into uh, indie games as a teenager, uh, obviously Hotline Miami was a was a. <laughs> You know, when you're 17 years old, yeah, that game is going to fucking rip, but it still fucking rips as an adult. I played it again recently and it's like, look, great shit. Great shit. Um, did you see John Wick Chapter 4? No, I have not. I was also going to say I've still not played Hotline Miami. I own it on two different things and I've never played it. Two very important things for you to check out. Hopefully uh, very close together. We'll do great it. stuff. Um, <laughs> but no, yeah, indie games. Great. Like, obviously, I played Undertale in college. Uh who among us, <laughs> except for people, yeah. who, um, except people who didn't happen to be in college in 2015, I guess, but they don't. Yeah. Care. I mean, the We're main characters of reality were in college and yeah. Anybody who has my shared world experience are the relatable people and therefore the important ones. Yeah, exactly. Other people aren't real. Sorry to my listeners who genuinely skew older because I have <laughs> people who are fully grown adults in their thirties and forties as guests on my show. Apologies to all of you. Uh, but <laughs> The real people are talking now. Um, Love you, comic Hamish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Broadening the conversation a little bit. Yeah. You talk about now how you are a PC and Nintendo person in the two different phases of your life. What would you describe as your favorite console of all time overall? Yeah. So I had not really thought about this. I don't think until the first time I heard you ask a guest it on the on this show. And when you did, my brain immediately went Nintendo DS. Uh, immediately DS. The DS was, you know, the console, like when I was a teenager, like you don't get any more right now in the same way, a company who will make a system that just entirely prompts a developer. You have to think about games in these ways. Nintendo kind of does with like the Joy-Cons having, you know, motion controls on the Switch. Uh, Sony has the DualSense controller with like its adaptive triggers and stuff. But the DS just being like, all right, motherfuckers, you need to start innovating for how you're going to use this second screen. What else? We've got a microphone in this. What else? Here's the 3DS. It's got a gyroscope. It is from this era of just like giving developers weirder and weirder things to play with and seeing what comes out. Um, one of my other favorite Pokemon games is Heart Gold and Soul Silver. I think those are their best remakes they've ever done. Um, not counting Arceus, because I think Arceus is just kind of a different thing. But I, I love those. I love The World Ends With You. That was That's my favorite DS game. That is almost, uh, that's another game I could have pitched to talk about with you. That is an incredible game to me because what you do in that game, if you don't know, is you control one character on the top screen, one on the bottom screen. One on the bottom screen, you control with the DS stylus. 
and the top one you control with the D-pad or face buttons and do little like fighting game combos with, you're doing it all at the same time. And the mm -hmm. game finds a way, obviously of course there's people who are gonna play that and it isn't gonna work for them, but like that worked for enough people that The World Ends With You is an enormous cult beloved game that eventually got a pretty good sequel. Uh, like stuff like that people love ghost trick people love the professor layton and phoenix wright games that were on the ds like there is just such a chapter of gaming i think that is defined by the ds more than anything else that was out then like i i think in my head the ds matters more than the xbox 360 <laughs> just for giving experiences that you will not get on anything else before or since no, for sure. I mean, I, I talked about this in the Sonic Adventure 2 episode about um, the the rate of games that people purchased uh, versus like how many people like, you know, had the console and like the DS was so huge because even though like it has like such a unique architecture with the two screens, it sold like fucking everything. Like even when Nintendo was struggling in the console market, they were just like DS, DS. Everybody yep. loves the DS. Everybody fucking loves the DS. And, you know, the 3DS struggled with buying initially, but people it eventually like found its crowd after a price drop and like a better marketing thing. Early adopter to 3DS here was suffering. It was pain. Me too. Um, yeah, I, I played it. Ocarina of Time for the first time and nothing else of value. Bought it launch day. Ocarina of Time didn't even come out until several months after <laughs> its release. So yep. that's how bad it was. Anyway, uh, moving on from the DS, I want to gauntlet these last couple of questions so we can get into the main event and give this game, this incredible game, the consideration it deserves. What have you been playing lately? Yeah, uh, you ever hear this little game called Breath of the Wild? <laughs> Breath of the Wild? Yeah, so uh, I have been doing what I think some people did and like, oh crap, the new Zelda game's coming out. I need to go finally finish the last one. Um, it, we'll get into it when we talk about the, the game for today, but like, I didn't really get open world games for a long time, and that includes when Breath of the Wild came out. I love Zelda. Like, I'm a huge Zelda head. Minish Cap is one of my favorite games of all time. Wind Waker is one of my favorite games of all time. Like, I, I love Zelda to pieces. But I had this thing that I've had with every open world game up to a point in my life uh, that's very relevant to this episode. I, I, I had this thing where I just, I appreciated what it was doing. I think I played it in 2017 or 18, got to the, um, the Zora place, did the first Divine Beast, and then kind of fell off. Maybe got to like the sacred, the, the, um, the Korok woods and fell off. And then years later, now I'm picking it up, having just played some other stuff and have a little bit of different perspective. I'm having a great time. Turns out the best game of 2017 is a pretty good game. <laughs> yeah, no, people like that game for a reason. It has a sequel for a reason. Uh, yeah. My roommate, Avery, who was on the Pokemon Emerald episode, he's playing through Breath of the Wild right now, and he's blown away by it as if it had just come out yesterday. This game is fantastic. It's great. I have a lot of thoughts on it. Right now I'm going through Tears of the Kingdom, and it's just kind of like, Wow, one of the greatest games of all time, surpassed in basically every way, without uh, betraying Breath of the Wild or making it feel obsolete. It's just like, God damn, I fucking love this series so much. And I'm so glad that everybody's talking about Tears of the Kingdom and Zelda games. So my lifelong obsession with this franchise is vindicated by the mainstream media, which is what is the most important thing about art is that the most people know about it and therefore <laughs> it's the best. It's that the Washington Post writes a review of the new game and old people who read it go, I don't know what this is. Why aren't you writing about the opera? I assume that's <laughs> what the comments on that look like. Yeah, no, yeah, that was definitely a little bit of discourse. How like journal, like publications do still have sections for the opera, but they don't have a vi dedicated video game section. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, there's a bigger conversation about like how obsolete is print media and it's becoming obsolete because it refuses to evolve 
or is it just becoming <laughs> obsolete because people have evolved past it? And uh-huh. I'm not equipped to have that conversation, but at least put some fucking video games in your section. It can't hurt. Having uh, worked for a newspaper for a couple years out of college, I agree. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, can't wait for you to do a Twitch conversation live where you just read a newspaper and critique it bit by bit. <laughs> just the layout's off. The kerning is bad on this subhead. What mm-hmm. are we doing? Yeah. Uh, I, I think I would actually watch that. You know, I, I, I joked <laughs> it, but I, I think I would watch somebody just critique a newspaper on like a on an actual like format level. Because you want to know what are the problems? What's wrong with it? I watch bullshit I don't initially care about all the time and then talk about like an authority about it days later. It's great. (laughs) Anyway, anything you're looking forward to playing since there's been like a million conferences announcing so many different video games? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The conferences have been uh, really interesting. So I'm 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 interested in the Persona 3 remake that got leaked and then announced. Uh, I really like four and five. I really like some of the other Shimigami Tensei games. Some of the we're talking about the DS, some of the. There are two uh, kind of Fire Emblem-styled strategy ones on the DS that I like a lot, but um, Persona 3, I know some people who love different versions of that game, and I'm excited to play that remake. I think it looks really pretty from the slice we've seen. It looks like they're taking the lessons from what really visually engaged people about Persona 5, but making it unique and taking the motifs that are unique to 3. Uh, It does sound like, so there's three versions of 3, from what I understand. There is the portable version and the FES version, which both came out after the original and like Pokemon Emerald, like that whole kind of structure, right? Both have other stuff the original version doesn't have. Everyone I know who loves Persona 3 loves one of those two versions. And nothing from those two versions is going into the remake, is what we've learned. So I'm excited, but I'm also like, all right, I'm also going to have to mod one of the older versions of this and also play that one day for my friends who love that version. Yeah. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that made it so hard for me to get into the Persona franchise initially, uh, like the, the format of it and like, which is the best version to play. I own five yeah. now. That's probably just going to be the first one I play and then work my way backwards from there as when I have a better bearing on what this series even is. But yeah, yeah no, I totally get it. And I'm, I feel for the people who are constantly suffering for liking the Persona franchise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For their, for their crimes and sins. Um, what, what else th- th- there was, uh, See, now I, I should have like written down a list from like Summer Games Fest and the other two events we've just had. because I feel like I'm going to forget stuff, but Don't Nod is making some kind of climbing game that I think was shown off at the Xbox event that looked kind of cool. I, I, I was a uh, attempted Remember Me stand back in the day, and I love, uh, I love um, uh, Life is Strange, which they did the first season of at least, and so it's fun to see them doing something else. There are games I'm curious to see how they are. I'll probably play the new Spider-Man. I don't have a PS5 yet. I'm going to get one for Spider-Man 2. I loved Spider-Man, the 2018 one. I loved Miles Morales even more. I think Miles Morales is the better of those two. Um, hot take. Excited for that. I Like I said, I'm into Final Fantasy now, so I'm going to at least take a look at 16, which comes out in a couple weeks. I didn't learn until really recently that it comes out that soon. Yeah, by um, the time this episode comes out, 4th of July, uh, Independence right. Day, this the game will have been fully out. You're right, yeah. Last question before we jump into the Outer Wilds here uh, is, are there any other games that mean a lot to you that you just want to give a quick shout out to? Sure. Uh, we talked about Pokemon Emerald already. That's a huge one. Uh, I mentioned Xenoblade Chronicles earlier. That was the other game I, I pitched you to talk about on this episode uh, because much like Outer Wilds, it kind of got me into a genre of game I didn't really gel with too much before. Besides Pokemon, I wasn't an RPG person bro- growing up. Uh, Xenoblade Chronicles, just the like way it plays and the world it offers was really, 
everything about it was interesting to me in a way that no Final Fantasy or like even Chrono Trigger, which I had tried out and have since played in love, had not hooked me at that point. So that's a huge one. Uh, Bastion, we talked about. Bastion, like Pyre is my favorite Supergiant game, but Bastion is the one that like, Bastion is the one of those early indie games that made me go, oh, indie games can be like this for the first time, you know? Um, so that that's a huge one. Oh gosh, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think like if I was to shout out one other like classic Zelda, which one? And it might actually be Minish Cap. Uh, I am a big Minish Cap fan. I think that is kind of the best uh, Game Boy and GBA handheld Zelda. I know Oracle fans will be mad at me for that. I like those ones a lot too. But there's just something about the way that game looks and the way that the like world of the Minish, this world of the little people kind of inhabits the world of Hyrule that I think is like, I, I think that is one of the most interesting Hyrules that we've ever had. And I like that about it a lot. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought up uh, Xenoblade and uh, Minish Cap both because the way that the, the impact that both of those games had on our current video game landscape or just the Zelda series alone, the director of the Minish Cap, who also directed the Oracle games in the Game Boy, is now the director of Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom. So yeah, like incredible formative well, game. If those games were not made... These games would not exist, and that's just yeah. an incredible lineage there. And that's why people shouldn't discount the handheld versions of video games because some of the best Zelda games are the ones on the handheld devices. And Minish Cap's incredible. That's uh, and that that's also the the director of the first Xenoblade Chronicles. The, a lot of the people on Xenoblade Chronicles work did support work on Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom. Exactly, what I was working at. Yeah, oh, sorry. Yeah. Does, yeah, yeah. No, you're fine. You got there before me. That saves me a lot of time and breath. <laughs> I, I love that series. <laughs> I've got to talk about it whenever I can. Yeah. No, Monolith works uh with the uh, Breath of the wild developers to make the game as good as it is it's a great collaborative mm -hmm. process and nintendo really knows how to curate talent from other sources in order to make incredible video games they don't do layoffs there they really know how to nurture their talent i'm not saying game development at nintendo is the gold standard or the ideal but there are broad lessons that we can learn about how they curate their talent that yeah. especially western developers can learn a lot from a lot of talk about developing, a lot of talk about independence, a lot of talk about AAA development, but we are going to now narrow our focus on one single video game, hopefully, and talk about the game that you picked, the game that we settled on together, an incredible video game that is very recent in terms of the history of video games, but one that has made a profound impact on the players who experienced it and had the patience to learn the lessons that it was trying to impart onto its players. It's called Outer Wilds. Outer Wilds is an open-world space exploration game developed by Mobius Digital and published by Annapurna Interactive. The game was directed by Alex Beecham, who started development on the game as part of his master's thesis while getting his master's at USC's Interactive Media and Games division in 2012. It expanded into a project intended for commercial release with a demo developed by Beecham and his team, capturing the attention of Masioka, Japanese actor and founder of Mobius Games. Uh, Masioka hired the entire team and Annapurna Interactive provided additional funding and financial support with the intention of publishing the full release. In addition to Alex Beecham, some of the other people who worked in the game includes Lone Verneau, who was co-lead designer with Beecham, 
Kelsey Beecham served as the game's writer, and Wesley Martin served as the game's lead artist. And the game's incredible music was composed by Andrew Prollo. Prollo got their start as uh, uh, like an, as an assistant on shows like The Legend of Korra and the Kung Fu Panda TV show. Just a very interesting lineage there, and has now composed what is now one of my favorite scores in any video game. So, great stuff, Andrew. This is a video game that is very difficult to discuss without spoilers. We will discuss spoilers when we get past the No Country for Old Games section, but I'm going to speak in the broadest strokes possible. So we will discuss spoilers in this episode. If you're at all interested in playing this game, thank you for listening to the show. It truly means the world to me that you give me your time and attention. But please pause this episode and come back later if you have any intention of playing The Outer Wilds. It's an incredible experience, and you should go in as blind as possible. But with as little spoilers as possible here at the top, here is the premise of the game. You play as an unnamed Harthian, a bipedal blue-skinned humanoid alien with four eyes and long ears. Uh, you're a member of the Outer Wilds Ventures, a space program determined to look for answers about their solar system and the history of an ancient, mysterious race called the Nomai, who occupied the solar system at some point. Uh, while preparing for your flight, a Nomai statue recently found by Outer Wilds Ventures glows in your presence. And after 22 real-time minutes pass in the game, the sun in your solar system goes supernova, wiping out everything and taking you with it. But suddenly, everything you experienced over the last 20 minutes flashes back before your eyes in reverse order, and you wake up at where you started in the game. <sighs> Facing the stars above you, revealing that you, and you alone, are stuck in a time loop. Armed with the knowledge that the sun will go supernova in 22 minutes, you take flight across the solar system to uncover the mysteries of the Nomai and determine the cause of the supernova and the time loop that you are currently trapped in. Shenanigans ensue. Shenanigans ensue. Shenanigans ensue. Shenanigans ensue. <laughs> as for the gameplay, it is experienced from a first-person perspective. As a space explorer, you have a spaceship, a suit with limited oxygen and fuel that can be refilled in your ship. Your oxygen can be refilled in enclosed areas where plants can visibly grow. You're also equipped with a probe that you can launch to take 360-degree pictures of areas you cannot see from your current position. The game has no combat. Items do not carry over between loops. You cannot gain any sort of experience. There's no upgrades to equipment. You can't raise your maximum health or fuel levels or oxygen levels. You cannot gain any additional probes to take pictures with. The only thing you can take with you every time you die is the knowledge that you gained from the previous loop. The broad details of that knowledge is stored in your ship's log, which keeps track of what you have experienced in the game. Objectives are not laid out for you in a traditional sense. This is an exploration game, and as such, all areas are immediately accessible from the start of the game. But how you access and navigate those areas are contingent on your knowledge of getting there. Areas aren't locked by progression. Uh, they are locked by your knowledge of them and the steps you have to take to reach them. This often means solving logic puzzles. Hints and solutions to which are found by exploring other areas of the Zonai, the ancient alien race previously occupied, or by speaking with the other explorers of the Outer Wilds Ventures who are scattered across the various planets you can explore. And that's the beauty of this game. It isn't about accumulating power. It's about accumulating knowledge to overcome obstacles. Outer Wilds was released in May of 2019. Other games released in 2019 include Death Stranding, Sekiro, Shadows Die Twice, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, and a similarly titled The Outer Worlds. But it is Independence Month, and here at Select and Start, we should also mention some of the indie titles from that year, such as Ape Out, Baba Is You, Bloodstained, Ritual of the Night, Disco Elysium, Hypnospace Outlaw, Sayonara Wild Hearts, and Untitled Goose Game. 
very quickly, Jay. Have you played any of those indie titles? Of that list, the only one I have played is Baba Is You. Uh, that was for whatever reason. That was actually a year I didn't play a lot of games. I played Baba Is You. Love it. Great game. I'll never finish because I'm too dumb. Um, but uh, <laughs> I played that. Not on the list. Uh, Fire Emblem Three Houses was a huge one that year and like de- devoured a lot of my time. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, Super Mario Maker Two was also one that devoured a lot of my time that year. Yeah, yeah. I was busy 2019 in terms of years. I was actually playing a few newer titles that year because of games like uh, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, and I played a bit of Sekiro at the time too. I still have to finish Sekiro. Uh, and I played the Outer Worlds. I played the Outer Worlds in its entirety. And that made it very confusing when I saw that this was also a game that existed. <laughs> and it really created this like very weird curiosity before I originally, before I finally got to play this game a couple years ago. I love Ape Out. Uh, I know I'm going to love Disco Elysium when I finally play it. I love Sayonara Wild Hearts. And I, am, I enjoyed Untitled Goose Game. But yeah, the point is 2019 was a great year, especially for any titles. There's no shortage. What made you decide on Outer Wilds as a game you wanted to talk about? Yeah, so uh, a couple things. Uh, the Outer Wilds is the newest game that I would call one of my favorite games of all time. Um, and, you know, like how we even quantify that is such a, you know, what the fuck does that mean? But uh, for me, it's like it, it is the most recent game that has like felt like it is added to my perspective of what games are in that in in as big a sense as it does um i talked about how how xenoblade uh made me understand rpgs outer wilds made me uh understand open world games like straight up mm-hmm. when i got my 360 when i was younger i got the 20 dollar edition of fallout 3 with it uh played it for like 10 hours didn't like it at all nothing against you fallout fans it just it like really didn't connect with me and that was an era like when when you and i were teenagers i feel like that was the first big era of everyone talking about open world games in that way. That was when GTA four had come out Bethesda stuff with, you know, fallout and then Skyrim coming out when I was like 16 or something like that was a huge deal. That was the only game anyone talked about for a very long time. And it was just a genre I hit my head against breath of the wild. Like we talked about, it was a genre I hit my head uh, against and just could never find my way into. I would hear people talk about like, the joy of finding their own adventure and making their own story in a game like that. And Outer Wilds was the first game where that happened for me. Mm-hmm. And do you think that's sort of because of like how scaled down it is relative to a lot of open world games that it's sort of like really made you interact with the open world and like giving you so little tools, but like also a smaller world really to interact with? I exactly think that is precisely what it is. Like the fact that when you hop into that ship for a run in Outer Wilds, you lift off from your planet from from Timber Hearth, you can just go up, 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 and then rotate your ship around and see all of it. Just right there, 30 seconds, bada boom, 20 seconds, bada boom, turn around. There's all the planets you can go to. They're orbiting the sun. There's the sun. There's everything. It's just right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of it's all of it's dense. All of it, you know, you 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 go into any one of those planets and it is such a like densely finely crafted space. But from that perspective, you can just get a firm grasp of the entirety of that open world. And it's not about breadth. It's about depth. And I think that is what really just instantly clicked for me about it. Yeah, no, I have a lot of this in my notes, but it is a, it is a game that is huge and small at the same time. And it does a really good job. Uh, I, I never really considered it in this way because i like oh, good open world games not like necessarily i understand like the burnout of them because of their presence but like a really good open world game really does justify its presence but the thing with outer wilds is not only does it really like give you 
a sense of the vocabulary and an understanding of the appeal of the open world, but it all also feels very transformative in our understanding of what open spaces can do, how much it can demonstrate how a player does not need to have its hand held to uh, uh, obtain objectives. And it just really has a different relationship with the dynamics between player and interactive setting. Like we talked about a minute ago, most games are really about power, you know, gaining power. And this is really just about your personal knowledge and how that builds progression, you know, in the actual kinesthetic skill of like, I'm getting a better hang of the controls within the game, but also in terms of like your knowledge of how to solve this puzzle, your knowledge of the lore of the, of the Nomai, your relationship with this space and how, you know, uh, the, the physics are going to interact with this particular planet that all factors in to all the knowledge, but like you do not gain any sort of power. You don't get weapons. You don't keep weapons. It's just a very interesting game in that way. And it's relationship with the player. Yeah, absolutely. I really like that. Uh, was the word language that you used a minute ago? Vocabulary the, or something vocabulary, like that. Vocabulary. There know. we go. One of those words that means words, you know, the ones. Um, yeah, the, like the dialect of that game is something that's just kind of given to you and you are left to kind of sit with. And I was so glad you said it in your intro there that like knowledge is the one thing you are taking with you from run to run, right? Like the, the things you learn and you discover to, you know, when I would hear people talk about other open world games and about kind of making their own story out of a Fallout or an Elder Scrolls uh, or a Witcher 3. Not only are you doing that in Outer Wilds, you are doing that while the main action of what you're doing is uncovering this story that you are interweaving with, especially Mm -hmm. as you reach the the end of the game, not to like jump forward there or anything. Yeah, it, it it is just a thing where you are really shown an entire space and told, here are the mechanics. You can kind of do anything with it. It's airtight. You can't really like, you know, this isn't a Zelda game where you can glitch your way up a wall. Like there's Mm -hmm. none of that. It's just the rules of this setting are what they are. And you can do whatever you can do within them. You can do within them, whether that's launching yourself out of your ship into a quickly rotating planet to try and get to the damn Ash Twin in time before the sun explodes. Or Mm -hmm. it's, you know, what any, any number of things. Right. Yeah. We'll talk about the specifics of this game very shortly. Yeah. But let's go back in time a little bit. Do you remember your first encounter with this game? I do. Uh, you mentioned Giant Bomb earlier. I was a big listener to the Giant Beast cast. They're like East Coast Office podcast back at the time. Um, that that like like 2018, 19 to me is like a very like Austin Walker was gone, but like Vinny Caravella and uh, Alex Navarro and Abby Russell was there at the time. Just a lot of people I liked hearing talk about games together. They were all going fucking bananas for Outer Wilds. And so a little later in the year that it came out, I went like later in the year I picked it up. Um, My PC at the time was a PC that I had helped my friend build when we were both in college. And then they later gave to like sold to me in exchange for something. I forget what. Uh, So it was an older machine that couldn't play a lot of games, but by God, it managed to run Outer Wilds. Uh, I downloaded the Epic store to buy Outer Wilds. I had not, I wasn't a Fortnite person yet. I'll dabble in the dang thing now. I've, I've uh, fallen victim to the masses on that one. But, uh, I, you know, I downloaded the Epic Store to play Outer Wilds. And uh, at this point in time, I was working 2 p.m. to midnight shifts at my job. And so I was coming home at like midnight or 1230, too awake to go the hell to bed because I just worked a full day, you know. And so there were a lot of late nights. I was living with someone, so I put headphones on. Where I would just sit there in the, I, my computer was in the dining room of the apartment we were in just because it was a weird little extra space we had. I'm sitting there in the dining room of my apartment at my desk, headphones on, lights off, 
outer wilds in front of me. <laughs> uh, going through a pretty hard few months in some other ways in my life and like just getting so sucked in so fast to this game like yo getting excited at the end of a work night like i get to go home and go into that uh center big tornado in uh in giants deep i get to go do this i get to go do that i get to go find more of this thing it was like kind of an addictive response in the same way that like getting into minecraft or something like that is for the for a lot of people no yeah it is it like and it's interesting because obviously like the loop is always going to be a set determined amount of time it isn't like mm-hmm. a like a a run in um a roguelike or roguelite game where it could be any amount of time and it could be like any it could be two minutes it could be 35 minutes whatever it is always like 22 minutes is the guaranteed time of a loop so if you know it, it, and it works both ways it's like i don't know if i have enough time for this i should go to bed soon or i should go do something else but it also works in the sense of like I could do 22 more minutes. Yeah, that's fine. That's nothing. Yeah, let's let's do another 22. And it becomes 11 minutes because you suffocate yep. to death in space somehow. That you, didn't you work. Go, you go into the Ember Twin at the wrong time. You're in the Sunless City. Uh-oh, it's the sands rising. The sands rising. But you know every single time that like at most, I have 22 minutes to do what I'm going to do. Yeah. And that, that makes it interesting. I played this game for the first time in 2021. A couple years after the game had been out like you, I had been familiar with like the broad strokes of this game because of the various, you know, video game podcasts that really do get into the granular releases of games like Outer Wilds, but also YouTube essayists like uh, Game Maker Toolkit and uh, Rasputin, who's like a very uh, one I hold in estimation in terms of uh, talking about video games. They were gaga over this game and hearing about it and getting a visual sense of what this game was like really made me interested in getting to play this game at some point. And I'm glad I did. And it really, really resonated with me. Very powerful game. But before we talk about why this game means so much to us, we have to talk about how people can play this game. That's going to bring us to our next segment, No Country for Old Games. First of all, uh, quick but respectful rest in peace to Cormac McCarthy, the author of the book No Country for Old Men, for which this segment is named after. Moving on. This segment exists to highlight an issue that's very important to me, video game preservation. If we consider video games an art form, which I do because it gave us games like Outer Wilds, we need to take the necessary steps to ensure that these games will continue to exist for years to come. So before we get in depth with our discussion on Outer Wilds, we're going to talk about the ways this game can be played as of the time of this recording. In this segment, we're going to rate today's game on a scale of A to ARG. And ARG is obviously an expression of frustration at how hard it is to acquire a game, and it is not me me in any way covertly advocating for piracy. Piracy is illegal, etc., etc., etc. Before we talk about the availability of this game, Jay, I have to ask you, when you get the urge to play Outer Wilds, how do you do it? Yeah, uh, I still do it on my Epic account on my PC. Um, I I have Game Pass on PC, but it's not on Game Pass. As, as you'll, you'll talk about, it's been on Xbox Game Pass. But uh, yeah, I, I just still have the digital copy I have, I have always had on PC on Epic. Yeah, okay, great. Good to know. Outer Wilds originally released on May 28th, 2019 as a timed exclusive for Epic Game Store, the, the vessel through which you experienced this game. Uh, it was released on Xbox One a day later on the May 29th, and then later released on PS4 on October 15th, 2019. The digital release of the PlayStation 4 version is how I played this game. 
A little over a year after its launch, it would be released on Steam in June of 2020. A physical version of the game was released for the PS4 by Limited Run Games that same year, but it appears that it is no longer in print and it is relatively difficult to acquire. The fact that this game got a physical release in any form at all is commendable. A big thing about these uh, digital independent games is like the fact that they don't have to, if the way that they can accumulate money and revenue is that they don't have to really go through the expensive process of pressing and releasing these games. And that's a blessing uh, for these games, but it is also a curse in terms of video game preservation. So it is a point worth highlighting. I'm glad that a physical release was made. I wish that we had some sort of way to make sure that these games could just be continued to be readily available in a way that doesn't make me fear about, you know, storefronts and uh, the, the internet being around forever. These are just considerations we have to make in the long term. But yeah, it's cost intensive to make physical copies of the game, so I'm not going to hold it too much against this particular developer. Outer Wilds is also currently available through the PlayStation Plus subscription service. As you mentioned, it used to be on Game Pass. Now it isn't. Those on the extra and premium tier for the PlayStation Plus have access to this game as long as they continue to pay for their subscription. Games can appear and disappear from these subscription services so better to play it sooner than later if you haven't already played this game other other availability things about this game the playstation 4 version and the xbox one version of this game are backwards compatible on the ps5 and xbox series s and x i hate having to say xbox series s and x it is so clunky and cumbersome (laughs) and i just want to say xbox x um (laughs) but a performance upgrade was released for these versions of the game in september of 2022 Uh, This upgrade released for free for people who already own the previous gen versions of the games. Play the game in 4K at 60 frames per second. Save files do carry over between versions, uh, though you would have to get any trophies you gained on the original version again on the upgraded version. Uh, Looking at it holistically, while Outer Wilds unfortunately does not have a consistently available physical release, which makes me concerned about its future long term, it is readily available on almost all of the digital Uh, storefronts. A Switch release is planned for the future. It is currently TBD. It was announced, I think, at this point two years ago, back in 2021, and it just keeps getting delays. But I do hope it gets released on the Switch because it does feel like the perfect format for that kind of game, and it isn't graphically intensive. I'm I'm shocked to learn that that release did not come out yet. Me too. I thought it did. I'm to learn that. Yeah. Wow. But I am going to cautiously say this is a readily available video game pending the Switch release, you know. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Obviously, the subscription thing is kind of a, a an anomaly, but on all of the versions that have a subscription version, there is like a digital version readily available to buy. So I'm going to give it a cautious A for now because this is an independent studio and they can't really do the affordable physical version that many other studios can afford to do. Hoping for the future, let's hope that this game stays available. If something happens, obviously, I will update my rating. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I feel bad. I did not get that physical edition while I was around. You know, I, I really do. I'm I'm bad at keeping up with what limited run and companies like that are putting out. Me too. I am going to make more considerations of getting physical releases in the future because games like Hades that I do buy digitally, I think, oh, I already own it. But then I think like, since I started this podcast, oh my God, do I own it? So for whatever it's worth, my soft, dubious rating system, this is an A for now. Um, and I hope it's a game that only becomes more available in the future because it is an incredible game. So to summarize, PC, Xbox, PlayStation 4 and 5, Switch version may happen. We'll see. Check it out if you haven't already. Truly is a game to experience blind on a first playthrough. Outer Wilds is a beloved game. The PC and Xbox versions of this game currently holds an 85 out of 100 on the review aggregation website Metacritic. It won Best Indie Game at the Golden Joystick Awards that year. The Guardian, Polygon, and Giant Bomb all named it as their best game of the year. 
but we're not here. We're not here to reduce the legacy of Outer Wilds to a series of numbers or accolades. We're here to actually discuss what it means to play this game with somebody who was moved by it. So let's get into it, Jay. Okay. Hello. <laughs> this is Clem Bianchi. I'm a courier, delivering mail and space, one package at a time. If you're hearing this message, I need some help. I'm trying to deliver a package to a guy on Pluto. Says his name is Gorge Flummox. If anyone knows a Gorge Flummox on Pluto, please let him know I've been trying to reach him about his box of Lunarian cheese. I know the box is full of cheese because, for the last few weeks, I've started hearing things when I touch my cargo. When I pick up a letter or a package, I hear conversations and sometimes even see things tied to whoever the mail is for or from. I call it the letter opener. It's yanked me into some real situations. A haunted house, a pizza delivery drag race, and even a revolution to take a city back from the bigwigs who keep its hoverboard sports engine humming. You can hear all about it on Additional Postage Required, a bi-weekly audio drama on the Moonshot Podcast Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Anyway, if you know Gorge, Please tell him to give me a call. I think his cheese is starting to move around in the box. What do you like about this game that you wish more games would do? So uh, I, I will answer that first and foremost with a little story of my very first loop in Outer Wilds, which was extremely shorter than the 22 minutes. At the time, I thought this was a scripted event. I later learned it was not. So uh, what happens at the outset of the game is you are on Timber Hearth, that first planet. You uh, go into this museum, right, that has like all this stuff about Outer Wilds ventures and about, you know, about stars collapsing, which we're sure won't be relevant to any reason in anyone's lifetime in this game. And there is a statue of, of a Nomai, um, not Zonai. I got to make sure I don't say fucking Zonai <laughs> from Zelda. <laughs> I actually... FYI, I think I heard you do that once in your intro into the game. Just FYI. My keep bad. Out. Just yeah, keep an, keep an ear out if you want to edit I'll later. edit in a little beep. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I do that. You know, you, you explore. You come back out. The statue looks at you. Maybe looked at you. Sarah, get me Superintendent Chalmers. And that is what what you sort of eventually learn, like, locks you into this, you know, cycle of resetting after the 22 minutes. Uh, every time. So I do that. I get the launch codes I need to launch the ship off Timber Hearth. I go up uh, the little elevator to the launch pad. My controller bugs out. <laughs> and I proceed to walk off of the launch pad and fall to my death in the center of the town in Timber Hearth. <laughs> and that is what causes me to respawn. And I think, oh, I've just died. I have to do it again. But then <laughs> when I talk to, um, you know, where you respawn, there's this this guy like in his sleeping bag just hanging out at a campfire right by where you wake up. And I talk to him and my character is saying, I think, did I just die? And I go, oh, this is a time loop game. I didn't know that at this point going into it. I thought for the longest time that that event was like a scripted thing. Like we have to show the player that they're going to die and come back <laughs> very early on. <laughs> and so only later did I learn to know the PS4 controller that I had USB'd into my computer that my computer sometimes thought was a hard drive <laughs> bugged out at the wrong moment and walked me to my premature death. I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. So, so like a lot of what I love about this game is just how, again, like, like I was saying earlier, like no matter what happens to you, you are going to wind up learning something about the rules of the game, even if it is you completely fucking up and having a technical error that 
causes you to die in a funny way. That could be how you learn something very fundamental about how the game works. And I feel like in a game that is so much about trial and error and you taking these 22-minute runs through planets and through the mysteries within them, it doesn't fucking matter if you get crushed to death by sand. You still read an important message from someone about the eye of the universe before you got crushed to death by sand, you know? Yeah, even when you set your ship on autopilot to go to a planet and then suddenly that planet orbits behind the sun and you drive directly into the sun, at least you learned, hey, probably shouldn't put my autopilot on when things orbit so quickly <laughs> around the sun. I got I to gotta actually be conscious of where this thing's going. Everything's a lesson. Everything is a lesson. It's a, it's a mindset going into this game. You have to understand the mindset. <laughs> so many times, dude. More than once. Yeah, more than once. It's going to happen more than once. It happened oh, more yeah. than once for me. And maybe I'm just, maybe we're just silly, silly people. But very possible, very possible. But but so are the people of Timber Hearth, and they made it to space. Look, look, you, you at least got to space the second time. Yeah. <laughs> um, you didn't um, even leave the planet the first time. <laughs> I, I got there eventually. Oh, and then when I did get to space, I see, um, I don't know what planet I was on, but I, I was somewhere where I could like see the sun exploding, see it happening. And I was like, what the fuck's going on? Like, it took me like three cycles all said to understand, oh, okay, the sun explodes every 22 minutes. I had yeah. a, a, a bit of delayed learning there. Yeah, and that's honestly a f very fun way of figuring that stuff out. Like, like I said, on a blind playthrough, like you didn't even know until like almost an hour into the game that the sun is just going to explode every single time. Yep. That's uh, trippy. Yeah. You know, we said it earlier with the whole like flying out and looking back on the whole solar system thing. But like, this is a game that gives you this fucking clockwork box. It gives you a big stopwatch that you can tinker around with all the little gears of. Like, from the get go, the fact that you can just kind of go anywhere and learn something. Like, I, I read a lot of books as a kid when I got into games. I played a lot of story based games. When I got into indie games, I, you know, I loved Gone Home. I got, I loved a lot of quote unquote walking simulators. I loved a lot of very story-heavy games. You know, uh, uh, Bastion was a huge one as well for that. And so, like, the idea of an open-world game where I'm just like, it's an oh, it's open world and I can decide whether to blow up Nuketown in Fallout 3 didn't appeal to me. It does a little more now, but didn't appeal to me at the time in the same way as this, where, like, what's so magical about Outer Wilds is that it is a story you're uncovering in whatever order and every piece of that puzzle, every piece of that story connects to 10 others visually on that map in your ship but also just narratively in terms of what it is you're uncovering, what it is you are learning about the people who became before you, the Nomai, and also about uh, Outer Wilds Ventures, about the, the Harthians, right? Like you learn a lot about them as people too. It felt like I was exploring a Pepe Sylvia conspiracy board, you know, in a very physical <laughs> way, because you're just going into these planets, you're figuring out what is the deal here? Okay, I'm on Giants Deep. Every few minutes, a tornado picks up some of these islands in the water and flings them into space. Uh, I'm on Brittle Hollow. Oh, oh, what are these holes falling in the ground? Uh-oh, I'm pinwheeling around a black hole in the center of the planet. Okay, I'm going to try and go into it. Oh, now I'm in a, a spaceship. Like, everywhere you go, any one of those places that you go, you are going to find writing from the Nomai. You are going to find visual influences. You're going to find those, um... I forget the word they use from them, but the, the thing where you can put it, put kind of a keystone on a pedestal and get this like visual look at a different location on a planet or another planet. 
mm-hmm. um, sort of like hollow deck thing. I forget the word for it. We'll just call them hollow discs or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're 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 hollow decks. Captain Picard is there. I I love that wherever you go, you are going to find a piece of this story, and the order in which you uncover the pieces of the story become your story, become your narrative through it. And like talking about it being a, a loop game, I think something else that really worked for me really quickly is like. Like I said earlier, I'm not always great at games. Like there are a lot of video games and types of games uh, that I will get frustrated with and and kind of just drop. I, as I get older, I'm a little more patient. I'm a lot more patient, I think, with games. I've gotten into uh, Elden Ring. I play Souls games now. I could never, I could never do that when I was younger because I would get to just put off by stuff. I've even picked up fighting games a little bit. Uh, another thing that like I could not wrap my head around combo systems when I was younger, but now mm-hmm. I. If I have friends who want to play those, I know how to pick them up. I lost my point for a second there, but like the frustration base in Outer Wilds is so low because if you get frustrated with one planet, if you're like, I can't get the timing right to get onto the Ash Twin, to get into you know, to whatever I'm trying to do, you can just do something else. Your little board you have in your ship is always going to give you all these strands that you've uncovered. You'll look at that and go, oh, I didn't think to go back to Timber Hearth, the planet I started from, and see what else is there. Oh, I forgot to go to the moon. Oh, I haven't talked to all of these other uh, Outer Wilds Ventures members who are places. It is a game that is so ready to nudge you and be like, hey, if you're stuck, just go somewhere else. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Like, Yeah, hit the bricks. Yeah, hit <laughs> just leave. Different bricks. Yeah, hit the bricks. Shit got bad. Too fancy <laughs> moon. Yeah, no. The whole like experiential thing is what really hits with this game. Like, I don't know. I did not die on my, my, on the planet Timber Hearth on my first run, but it's incredible yep. that you did because you and I had completely different first experiences. This game's dynamic. This game is, uh, like you said, like clockwork moving pieces. The way you are basically fighting against a current this entire game, it is the opposite of a power fantasy. Your example, using Fallout 3 to determine like Nuketown, whatever, or a similar game that came out the same year with the same name, The Outer Worlds, you are a moral determiner who gets to affect the actions of this world here. You are almost always a victim of it in outer wilds. You are exposed to the elements. You got brittle bone disease. I was born with glass bones and paper skin. Every morning I break my legs and every afternoon I break my arms at night. I lie awake in agony until my heart attacks put me to sleep. Oh no. No. Every time your air suit gets punctured and you suffocate <laughs> to death because you, you walked into a spike funny, <laughs> you're nothing. You'll never be more than nothing. You can only get smarter and watch your fucking step and make sure you know how to pl- fly that uh, ship because it is intentionally, uh, it's, it's sort of like the, the horse in Shadow of the Colossus. You're not riding, you're not like controlling the horse. You're controlling your character, controlling the horse. Yeah. If, if, yeah. You, can, if you can like think of it in those terms. You are always your character. Your character is controlling the ship. And that's what's going to like determine like, okay, here are the thrusters going and all this, that, and the other. So you're not going to have a lot of smooth landings. You're going to have to repair your ship sometimes mm-hmm. because, uh, oh my God, oxygen is leaking or, oh my God, the thrusters can't take off anymore. So- sometimes you have to repair your ship in space. You're in space. You have to hop out and like carefully float around it in your suit and go bzz, 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 and hopefully you don't float too far away from it while you're doing that. And look, if you can't do it, you got to hit the bricks. You got to kill yourself. You got to go into the sun or something. 
there's no power. It's all knowledge. And I, and I, I love that. Yeah. Like all video games are sort of variations of like the Groundhog Day scenario, wherein you die, you hopefully learn a lesson, you don't die again. But recently, uh, and it's likely because of not the original influencer of it, but like one of the primary influencers of it. The year 2000 was when the Majora's Mask came out. Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, my favorite video game of all time. A Groundhog Day time loop video game. One that the developer of this game, or the director of it, uh, Alex Beecham, cited as an influence on the development of this game in this article uh, called Road to IGF, Alex Beecham's Outer Wilds, written by Phil Cameron. This is a 2015 article, four years before the actual final version of this game would come out. This was just a demonstration of the demo midway through development. This game was in development for roughly seven years. God, so goddamn long. It started with a master's thesis and then yeah. seven years released a commercial game. An indie studio, like this is this was a passion project. This is how they do it. Beecham said, Majora's Mask is a favorite among our team, so we'd be lying if we say it didn't have a big influence on the game. The sense of impending doom, particularly the music that plays during the final two minutes, was very much inspired by Termina's lunar predicament. Despite the obvious similarities, I do think the two games use time loops in very different ways. Majora's Mask creates this complex schedule of events that lets you play around with causality, whereas Outer Wilds' time loop primarily exists to allow the creation of large-scale dynamic systems. Certain irreversible processes like the destruction of Brittle Hollow, which is in the game uh, Rock Planet, where things just fall off the planet, never to return, so you have to do things within a certain time crunch because the planet is literally falling apart. Uh, so things like the destruction of Brittle Hollow wouldn't make sense if we never reset the clock. Plus, it turns out you can get away with some pretty crazy things when your simulation only has to be stable for 20 minutes. Uh, I'll come back to this point. Uh, Sarah Cialdi, one of the game's producers, added in this interview, we love the idea that the time loop enables exploration to be as much about when players explore as about where. We use the time loop to allow players to explore the same areas differently throughout a single playthrough, and then use what they've learned in earlier playthroughs to affect how they explore in subsequent loops. So it is influenced by Majora's Mask and their time system, but like obviously in a way that's more transformative and more about environmental stuff and not just uh, time schedules, right? Which is incredible. It is very much like a conscious thing, but also having like the language of a video game developer to explain the differences between the two in a way that I would not have been able to verbalize it. So thank you, Alex Beecham, circa 2015. Yeah, these Groundhog Day type games, it's probably because like, you know, people who grew up playing these games are now old enough to be game developers. But around like five years ago, a bunch of them started coming out at the same time. Like there are a few instances of this stuff coming out, uh, but not quite as the same thing. Uh, older versions of like time loop games like Prince of Persia, Sand of Time or uh, Braid, where it's like an immediate relationship with like reversing time, where it's mm -hmm. like in the moment going back. Undertale plays with it in a much less immediate way, where it's like subsequent playthroughs are characters remember what you did in previous playthroughs there's like these games that play with the idea of time loops in certain ways but the, the, their games are just very specifically built around the time loop as an active mechanic like loop hero the forgotten city returnal death loop minute these are all recent very recent examples coming around the same time as outer wilds well if i can just add to that even like in 2015 i think uh the adventure zone the podcast which was very popular at the time had uh, the 11th hour arc, I think it was called, which was directly based on Majora's Mask, where it was the party comes to a town where they have one hour that's constantly looping to like solve what's going on in the town. So yeah, it, it's just like all these people having having these ideas coming out in the same few years of each other. Yeah, but the way that 
this game like does it is like so wildly different because again like a lot of these games is like power accumulation a lot of it is a mix of like accessible you know resources knowing where things are uh like obviously death loop is a very action-oriented video game and this game is so much like less guided and it's just very much about like the world as it is about you trying to figure out what's going on in it the discovery about it is so so great and how it doesn't hold your hands through it is incredible uh, I want to draw attention to that line I mentioned earlier about getting away with pretty crazy things when your simulation has only only has to be stable for 20 minutes. I love that because it demonstrates how clear the developers were, how clever the developers were in designing this game, right? They're, yeah. they're playing with limitation to create a brilliant experience. I think that's incredible. It feels Absolutely. huge, but it's incredibly small. They're, it's conscious knowledge of limitations to create a full, rich, defined world it's not just taking up too much of your time. Everything is so deliberate that you don't feel completely lost. And because of that very basic, uh, you know, push pins and string thing that you have at your computer, you you are able to just sort of like, okay, well, let's go to one of these other planets instead. It doesn't feel like I have to do too much to get back to a place where I die at. It doesn't feel like I have to do too much to go to the next planet. The whole game is just eight gigabytes. Eight oh gigabytes. That's magical. That's so yeah. magical to me. I really like Majora's Mask. I have never finished it because when I tried to when I was younger, the three day cycle stressed me out. Like mm-hmm. you, you, you talked about it. I, I like how you said it. Um, where in that game it is causality. It is here is a schedule, right? Here is three days of stuff that's going to happen, where people are going to be, what they're going to be doing, what you can change. Yeah, Beecham's words about it. Yeah, yeah. Th- th- there was there was something about like making sure I was in the right place at the right time for so many things in in the way it is in that game. Maybe it's just that Termina felt really big to me at the time. I don't know. But it just stressed me out when I was playing it. And I, I think it would less now. I think I was like a younger teenager when I was doing it. And maybe I would feel not that way as an adult. But in Outer Wilds, again, to your point, like what's going to happen in Outer Wilds is going to happen no matter what. And eventuality is such a big theme of that game that having it be mechanically how you interact with all these planets in this 20 minute, two minute stretch is such a like incredible. I want to bottle that like that, that marriage of the narrative way and mechanical way of what that world is is just fucking ingenious to me right it redefines our relationship with video games not just in like oh it's more about knowledge than power but for a lot of people especially people who've played a lot of video games arguably too many video games and you're in my case you start thinking about min maxing which is you know Mm -hmm. trying to do the most with the least especially with anything with like a clock orientation right like not just in Majora's Mask, you think like, how much can I do in a single loop uh, to get the most productivity done in this like particular loop? Or just something even very simple like uh, Stardew Valley, which has uh, the 24-hour clock. What can I get done in a day? What can I do to make the most use of my day? And I know that a lot of people are stressed out by Stardew Valley because <laughs> you, know, you're, you feel yourself on a time crunch, even though like, you, there will be a tomorrow. And even though in uh, Majora's Mask, you will be able to go back and yeah, you'll lose progress on your dungeon, but at least you know how to get through it faster. People have that frustration of, I didn't get enough done in a limited amount of time. Whereas Outer Wild is trying to train you to do is like, yeah, you fucking died. So what? Do it again. It's going to be all right. You you can die as many times as you want. You just fail. You, You get back up. You fail. You get back up. You know more though, right? You know more. And I think it that's a, you know it speaks to the how minimal this game is that it's not action oriented and it's not a time loop and something else kind of game it's just an open open ended world that you're exploring and learning more about 
that it gives you that space to sort of get over those hangups that more mechanically involving games are like Stardew Valley and Majora's Mask have going on. That you can probably get over those hangups and return to those games knowing this is okay. I can fucking fail. Failure is okay. Failure is the entire premise of this game. Death is an inevitability. It's going to be fine. I I also think that something that helps with not feeling like you've not done enough in a run is that none of the planets are that big and none of the hidden things are really that hidden. I mean, they are, but they aren't like you land on a planet and you can just walk across the surface of that motherfucker and find a Nomai ruin and something to translate that will trailhead you off to investigate something underneath. Like there are trailheads right on like every planet in this game. There are starting points, things that can be starting points that can lead you off in a direction to very quickly, like minute one, I, I've been mentioning the Ash twin and the, the, the hourglass twin planets, the two, which are, if you're listening, you don't plan to play this game. They're two planets that are connected by a, a, a column of sand moving from one of them to the other. And it completely moves over those 22 minutes. You could land on the Ember twin minute one, read something on the surface and find out how to get to the sunless city down beneath the planet by minute five. Like, there are so many things that you can get to kind of quickly if you want to. Talking about those planets, there is something very important underneath the sand on the Ash Twin of those two twins. And by minute 22, you can just see it from space. Like, everything always feels kind of within your grasp, you know? like that—that That is, I think, really important, is that in a Zelda game, if you're halfway through a dungeon and you haven't gotten to the point where there's like a warp point back to the start... You don't want to backtrack through all those rooms, especially if it's one where maybe it's a longer path than some others. I never feel that way. Well, there's a couple points where I start to feel that way in Outer Wilds. The Sunless City is kind of one of them. But almost never in this game do I ever feel that way. It always feels like Mm -hmm. I can hop back out and re my focus. Yeah, no, you know, brilliant point on your part there talking about and using that example, too, because that those two hourglass planets is one of my favorite set pieces in any video game. It's such a brilliant premise. And like all the planets here so cool. are brilliant in how they have like this relationship with the 22 minutes, whether it's the planet that's just a perpetual typhoon water planet with like rise raising and lowering, lowering tides and islands disappearing off the map or the brittle planet, which is falling apart at all times. And, but like, yeah, but like my favorite is this hourglass planet like you said like one planet is full of sand and it's draining to the planet below it and that's going to just completely change your relationship with space in both because like as one planet, like as more and more stuff opens up in this one area another place is closing up but also like it isn't just that simple because oh i can only access this area vertically because the sand is at this particular level but if it drains too much then I won't be able to get up there as easily as I would otherwise. Like there's there's layers to it, but you're learning more and more about these planets to reach loop. Like, uh, oh, I can go into this underground stuff before the sand fills it up too much, but I can't linger because eventually I'm going to be drowned by sand. Mm-hmm. It's all incredible. It's like so, so good. It's a terrarium. I uh, am fascinated by YouTube channels. There's a couple of YouTube channels I watch that are like, here's a guy who has an enormous tank and introduces like plants and aquatic life into it and just like creates this kind of perfectly self-sustaining micro ecosystem. That is what this game is to me is it is just like every inch of space is being used for this ecosystem to in some way sustain itself. Obviously it's sustaining itself across a 22 minute loop rather than like something actually infinite and perpetual, but it is kind of a perpetual motion machine to then 
immediately switch my metaphors from a ecosystem to perpetual motion machine. It just feels like a perfectly crafted space. Like it, it, it's incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like we we're talking about like the relationship with space, the relationship with time here. Uh, I was talking a little bit earlier about, you know, it's okay to die. Death is perfectly acceptable as like a fail state in these games. Your only person being hard on you about this right now is yourself, especially within the context of um, Outer Wilds, where like you have to die if you don't know what's going on because dominoes are being reset. Everything is starting from one and you have to do things differently this time. You have to change your approach. You take that knowledge into the next loop. But death itself is just an inevitability in like, you know, the real world, too. And I think this is a great game that normalizes death and failure in a way that you can internalize for yourself. Like, obviously, we're talking about, oh, this game, you know, teaches you how to be comfortable in an open world environment. Oh, this game makes you comfortable exploring it changes your relationship with space in a video game. Sure, 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 yeah. But like on an actual like personal emotional level, this game helped me make more sense uh, with like coping with reality. <laughs> yeah. not, not just like that whole like we're just things on a floating rock kind of like college level existentialism or whatever. I'm talking like in the sense of like the end is an inevitability. Things are out of your control. You're going to be fighting against a lot of stuff. And you're never going to be able to do everything you want to do in a day. Just little yeah. lessons like yeah. that, you know? Just, just to paraphrase what you just said beautifully there. Uh, someone I knew in college uh, as a creative writing major, someone I knew wrote a, uh, like a, a graduating writing major essay that started with the sentence, I realized recently that no one can do everything. <laughs> just everything is two separate words. And it went on to like talk about like specific life goals. I just think about that thought very often is like, yeah, you'll never fucking do everything. Um, and that, that even corresponds to like, you know, there are things in this game that I didn't discover until literally, literally there's something I didn't find out until the, in this game until I was replaying it in preparation for this episode. There are people I know who haven't finished the, who have finished this game without finding things that were crucial to me solving puzzles in this game. This idea of like, you can't do everything. Even if you make the most that you can perceive of the situation you're in, of the life you're living and like the, the, the sort of scope of the world around you, there will always be more of it than you will be able to grasp in a go through of life, but you'll grasp enough. Whether you learn a lesson from one place or another, whether you learn how to track the phantom moon from what someone says in a piece of writing on hollow bastion or hollow bastion, Jesus Christ. <laughs> um hollow bastion this ain't the right ah, thing. shit no <laughs> um but you know no matter where you learn that from you'll learn it and you'll go and make use of that mm -hmm. and god like, like just what were you saying about that sort of college level thesis and moving beyond it to like have that kind of holistic perspective on like yeah the world's gonna end one day that is not to like jump ahead if that's what it would be doing but like that is ultimately what kind of the end point of this game is right is like yeah the 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 world is going to end let's watch the stars it's a pretty night like like it is so much that perspective of understanding the things that are out of your control and celebrating them and mm -hmm. celebrating the ways in which they're going to move no matter what you do and maybe just trying to give them the best send off you can and have the best time with it you can that's been extremely important to me to to sort of carry in my life right no i get it like it's not nihilistic. It's not. It's not even really absurdist as a work. Even like it's not as simple uh, of like or you know like obviously these philosophical concepts have complexities to them. But 
it's it's not like you know anything where it's like you're going to die accept it be okay with it It, it, it's all about tone first of all uh but like Mm -hmm. it's also about like your mental relationship with life your uh, relationship with your surroundings uh obviously like your attitude about things that's going to inform basic facts that are inevitable like Death is the true inevitable, no matter how you conduct yourself in life, no matter what you personally believe in, no matter who you have around you, you are going to die inevitably. Like you have to like come to terms with that in some way and conduct your life in such a way that you can make the time between right now and the moment you die meaningful to you. And I think this game does like sort of represent that really well in an interactive space. It's not just as simple as like you're going to die, deal with it. It's like you're going to die. How are you going to deal with it? Like, I don't know. Like, really, it's like its attitude is like you don't really fail in life unless you walk away. You cannot beat this game if you stop playing the game, but you can keep failing at this game, but you can just keep getting back up and keep getting back up and keep getting back up and you'll keep participating. Yeah. No matter how many times you think like, oh, I'm stupid at this game. I've died like a hundred times. I'm sure people have beaten this game in a shorter amount of time. Meaningless metric. If you want to keep trying, keep trying. If you don't want to try, then you stop playing the game and you stop participating. But what was your meaningful experience in that? What did you get out of that experience? Yeah. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a great, great representation about <laughs> life and what will ultimately be your relationship with death. Yeah. And, and like how to explore your passions through it, right? Like I think bouncing off of that, another beautiful thing to like, think about there is the fact that that you know your character is not much of a defined character you can choose some lines of dialogue with the other explorers you meet and people on timber hearth here and there you're you know you're not much of a character but what you know is that you you are a character who is out here because they want to learn about the nomai right like they want for all of the members of outer wilds ventures especially for you it kind of feels like to whatever degree that character is a character this is that person chasing their passion with the time they have left they could, you know, wake up and realize they're going through a time loop and like spend every loop panicking, running around Timber Hearth, telling everyone they know, hey, we got to do something about this, trying to like do other solutions, a million other things you could do. But no, they say, I'm going to use these circumstances I found myself in to follow my passion the best I can. You know, like they say that in in the sense that you, the player, do that because that's the video game. But like, it does kind of feel like you are furthering that pursuit of i don't care how much like it's equivalent to at that point in my life i hated my day job and i was doing that youtube channel i was talking about and i was getting involved with the friends who would eventually become moonshot um Mm -hmm. and like there is this sense of i i wasn't dying but i felt like i was fucking dying every day going to work but like by god there are these passions that mean so much to me that i will get up and do it again and again and again and again because what i am building in myself and what i am furthering in myself matters that much to me that I will put up with anything. Learning about the Nomai matters that much that you will, you know, put up with dying and getting eaten by the sun and suffocating in space and all these other different ways, falling off a platform, all these different ways you can die in Outer Wilds. You will sit through it all because it means you get to learn a little more about who these people were and what they were trying to do. And at the end of the day, Something else I fucking love is the way the story goes. You kind of eventually learn the the Nomai are are in pursuit of they're, they're kind of trying to talk to God. They're trying to find the eye of the universe um, and like communicate with effectively a like the center of the cosmic universe. 
they don't really get like it doesn't sound like they've really gotten there like at the end of the day you are not gonna complete the job you're gonna complete whatever step of the job you're gonna complete and you have to find the value in that that makes that good enough for you and that makes your life feel well spent at the end of the day when you're sitting under the stars while your friends play music around you and you kind of let the end wash over you yeah we can talk about the ending more in a big big way yeah. in a minute here but oh, like yeah, yeah. uh like I'm, I'm you know obviously a great point i'm trying to come back to like the whole like death point of it all right but like yeah, i'm sorry that was yeah, a gigantic yeah, no. tangent no a no, bit. It's a, no it's a fantastic everything you said was valuable and i loved hearing it everything was great i love like the way that you're able to connect your personal experience with where you were in your life yeah and the pursuit that you make it's that whole like you're yeah. not going to get everything done in a day like you had to endure mm-hmm. those parts of your life in spite of like everything pushing against you you still mm-hmm. pursued what mattered to you that's yeah. that's that's this whole game like going for it despite you know knowing you're going to die even if like you know that the thorns that puncture your suit don't kill you or if the typhoon doesn't kill you that sun is just going to kill you and you're going to be back to zero you get up you do it again you learn you, you did it it, you're fine. Live and learn. Sonic the Hedgehog, whatever. <laughs> but like, um, you're fragile. Death can happen anywhere, just like in life. Even if you live to be a hundred, some people get to live to be 103. Some people die fucking tomorrow. You can outsmart the puzzles in this game. The solar system is still going to hurt you. The sun will go supernova. Everything will die. Everything you're doing is exploring the remnants of something that has already died. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're surrounded by death. Like death is just something you're constantly confronted with. And you have to, like, define your relationship with that. I found it to be incredibly moving and peaceful. Like, you're, to your point, like, continuing to live knowing you're going to die. Because, like, death isn't really what kills you. What kills you is, like, giving up. Yeah. Yeah. That's the yes. spiritual death. Absolutely. Absolutely, right? Yeah. As long as you continue to play this, like, game and, like, pursue the knowledge and do it because you enjoy doing it. You're, you're indulging your character's passion you are seeing through something to the end. That's something that made the challenges you endured worth it. The multiple lives that you lived in multiple loops have some meaning. You know, th- there comes a point in this game where you learn that you will not stop the sun from exploding, right? And like, at that point, the question just becomes, okay, I know there's no stopping this. What do I want to make sure I've done by then? And that's what life is, right? Is just like asking yourself, what do you want to make sure you can say that you've done at the end of the day? And it does that to, to what you were saying a bit ago without being bleak, without being like edgy about it, for lack of a better or more articulate word. Like it, it is as honest about the realities of death as it is about the physics of space travel. And that is what's so beautiful about Outer Wilds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's honest, but it's not brutal. It's not condescending. It's comfort. It's super comforting and moving and tender, despite its subject matter. And it's, you know, it's it's constant, constant feeling of death on you. The ending of this game where like, uh, you know, obviously, if you haven't gotten this point already, guys, but spoilers, like after everything happens, you know, you see a universe, a a galaxy, a solar system that you don't get to experience, but continues to exist well without you. What was from the past is contributing to a future. And while you may not get to participate in it, stuff goes on. Yeah. Stuff goes on. It all, it all, it all continues. Um, There is a point where you're exploring know my ruins and reading their writings. Uh, you know, because because all all this writing is conversational. It is all characters talking to each other in this this script. 
there's a point where you learn that like you you find like ships like escape pods that uh launched out of a ship that you can't find and finding that ship becomes part of the the puzzle of the game right and 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 uh you figure out eventually where you have to go to get to it but like at first it kind of seems like okay maybe the nomai were a people who were just here for a while explored and experimented and left then you learn they like settled down and had kids and had families there are points where you can find writing between the kids of nomai whose writing you've read in other places in the game and so like you know even breaking down what the nomai were trying to do because the nomai come to this solar system while following the call of the uh the the eye of the universe the eye they they sort of end up semi stuck there because they can't they can't get back to the ship uh and they settle there like the work that they've done that you find are all these ruins these structures there's the structure satelliting um giants deep there's the one satelliting the sun that's incredibly difficult to get to there's all these things that they left behind to what to what you're saying about being among ruins you, there's a point where like the story the narrative about them that you're uncovering reminds you that that wasn't just like six guys who did all that that was generations of these people just like you can't be the person who lives to see the end of a universe and then live in that new one that is created at the end of the game the 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 work of the nomai was not done in the day the work of you is not done in the day you're not the first you know member of outer wilds ventures there's a member who's disappeared and missing at the start of the game who you can go find there is a real emphasis in this game of not only do you have to pursue the work that makes you happy and like fulfills you to the point where you can face death with contentment but you also have to acknowledge that you're not gonna like do all of the work on your own you're not gonna be you can paint incredible paintings you're not gonna be the renaissance the renaissance wasn't a guy like mm -hmm. that's just not how this works and i i just i think that perspective of scale adds a lot to that conversation of death where it just reminds you so much that this is all the work of many at the end of the game when you are watching that new universe be born you are with the other members of outer wilds ventures you're with a nomai you find who is still alive and you're just playing a song together and like you can read little bits of lore that remind you what each member of this team kind of pitched in to this incredible, you know, wooden spaceship NASA that you work for to get you to this point. And it really reminds you that it does like kind of take a village to, to find happiness before death. You have to sort of collaborate with other people who are also facing death, if that makes sense, I guess. That was also very rambly, but yeah. No, I think what you said was beautiful and it does like usher in more of this conversation right like you know you talk about how you're ushering in the new universe with like the other members of uh the outer wilds who are scattered to the winds these researchers all of them play an instrument right which is dem demonstrable the fact that like these people aren't just explorers like your life isn't going to be just one thing it isn't just the passion that you live and as evidenced by the whole like fact of the the text that you're reading isn't just journal logs or a presentation of facts and information but Law, conversational pieces, functionally like wall writing that is text messages of exchanges that people are having with one another. <laughs> you see marriages, you see uh, collaborators, friends, children, that lives lived, the civilizations started, the remnants of those civilizations. Not only are you looking at the fact that, like, you know, these people's lives had meaning beyond what they were doing for work, the research that they left behind, but like, 
they were passionate people. They felt emotions. They, you could see the stress, the anxieties, but also the passion and love and the, the, the works that they've cultivated that weren't strictly research stuff. You know, homes, children, yeah, children yeah. who've carried on that legacy, the legacy that's left behind that you're picking up and observing the remnants of. Like you do ultimately complete their work in a way. It isn't like it is all a collaborative process society, the generations moving forward. And like there's that stuff that you're seeing within those generations, the people who found meaning in their life despite being stranded and away from where they were originally from, that the way that they were able to make full lived lives, the fact that they were doing it, not because like strictly just because like ultimately we will go home at the end of this, but like we loved doing this. We loved being here. We were with people we loved. We lived our lives. We had children. Those children loved being alive. They did work. They found passion. They found meaning in all this. And then now at the very end of the universe where you're with your team who finally like sort of pieced together all this work carried across generations and you've complete that work and a new universe is ushered in, you're all together and you're all playing music together. Something that has nothing to do with science, art, <laughs> yeah. creating stuff. You're more than just your job. You have, there's more to your life than just the one thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, all I have to say to that is, yeah, it's so goddamn good. Yeah. It's not just like, oh, I'm going to get something done that makes life worth living. It's, oh, I'm leaving behind a legacy. That's what makes life worth living. No, it is the journey. It is the lessons. It is the knowledge. And it is the camaraderie. Even in this most isolating game, you never feel truly isolated because you hear the music of a companion yeah. nearby. Yeah. I mean, like, we haven't even talked about the the signal scope, right? The way you hear that music, you can whip that thing out and it, it hears people, like it hears frequencies across space. You can whip it out and point it in a direction, point it up at the sky, point down at the ground, and wherever in relation to you, the planet that a member of Outer Wilds is, you, you can hear that banjo. You can yeah. hear those drums. You know where they are. They're not that far away. You know where to find them because you just have to follow that signal, but also like... It's just good to know that there are people there. Yeah. It's it's wonderful. And look, we don't have to talk about every facet of this game. I do want to sort of move the conversation along into a more like, you know, constructive place. No video game's perfect. Not even a game as dense and brilliant and emotionally packed as this one. What do you wish this game did better? So, I there's one planet we haven't talked about or one planetoid we haven't really talked about, and that's Dark Bramble. I don't think there will ever be a run I take through this game where I don't kind of leave Dark Bramble for last. It is a, you know, for those who haven't played it, it is a thorny ball of a thing on the outside. It is a, like, I, I forget if the idea is that a planet became overgrown by this stuff or if it is just a like celestial mass of dense space resistant, like thorny plant life. But you essentially you pass into it and it is a like space all its own. It's kind of a like uh, I forget the word for it, but, you know, it's bigger on the inside. It's a Doctor Who. It's a TARDIS. Um, it's It's one of a couple places where the game sort of teaches you about like connected spaces in non-linear ways uh i don't like navigating that place I, and i think part of that comes down to the ship controls in outer wilds which you've talked about it is really incredible that 
they thought about controlling a spaceship in terms of you are a guy controlling a spaceship. But there are points where that's that feels very clunky. And I think Dark Bramble is the biggest offender uh, in that way, because when you're in there, there are uh, kind of the only like alien animals you meet in the entire game are these uh, giant (laughs) anglerfish things that you kind of have to do a stealth game around uh, as you navigate through this sort of like fogged out, difficult to see maze of a space where you are at one point looking for the red light from a signal that looks exactly like the lights that these anglerfish have on their heads. It's fine. It's just not my favorite kind of space to navigate. I I just don't have a lot of fun navigating my way through it. I understand that because this is a game that's mainly logic puzzles. And this is like the most, uh, this is when like the tone of the game changes from just like exploration at your own pace to relatively precise movements in like a horror section. It is a a horror section because it is foggy. Everything is aggressive and trying to kill you. This is like the closest thing to like immediate conflict you experience that isn't just strictly natural. It is a massive, scary looking creature that is going to try and eat you. You are at your most vulnerable here. You are at your most like, I got to do this right now. I got to move through this quickly. I am in danger. Fuck, 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 fuck me. Yeah. So I, I definitely get that. I, I, you know, had the relationship with it. Like, this is frustrating, but it is an interesting change of pace. I fucking hate it. in like a sense of like, <laughs> I, this is scary, but I, I appreciate yeah. that it was able to do that. Even if like the execution of it isn't necessarily perfect. I do think people who have issues with horror sections of video games are going to have a hard time with this section. Absolutely. And and like, it should be said that like when we talk about things wrong with this game, I think this is like kind of a perfect video game. So everything that, you know, I mentioned here should be taken within that. It's the difference between a nine and a 10, not a one and a 10, you know? Right. No. Yeah. It's not agonizing. And it's, you know, I, I understand like a lot of people will struggle with this a lot more than you and I have, but it is definitely a consideration to make. And even, even being generous with the game, it's not the perfect execution of it. Yeah. I love this game. I love its presentation. We talked about like this game is a lot about motivation, but like a lot of that is going to have to be self-motivated. Yeah. It like I think it's very I think it, it's not a game that's just like this is the game fuck you. It does try and make sure that you aren't helplessly stuck by like having that um having those like uh having that thing in your ship that like lets you know like where the threads of the things you've collected are going, right? It's not like a game that has like a UI that's like objective marker, go to do this. But it is a compromise where it's like, this is immersive. It's making me feel like I'm discovering these things. It's basically instructing me not to look at a walkthrough, but to just like experience the game and have my own journey with it. It's like breadcrumbs versus a carrot, right? I think a lot of people have to like sort of go in knowing that a lot of this journey is going to have to be self-motivated because the game isn't constantly dangling carrots in front of you. You have to generate your own motivation to get better. You are going to suck at flying the ship and you're going to have to accept I'm going to have to get better at flying the ship. You're going to accept that you are going to puncture your suit sometimes in a stupid way and you're going to have to figure out a way to patch it up. You're going to have to accept that like not everything is going to be done as not as much as you want to get done in a cycle is going to get done in a cycle. You're going to have to accept that you're going to take some L's. You're going to have to accept that it's going to take me some time to learn how to fly this ship. You're going to have to accept the the anglerfish at a point. <laughs> You're going to have to accept 
trying to uh, go into the Ember Twin with enough time to get to the underground city and read everything. But every goddamn time, the sand is a little bit too high and you get told by your computer later that there's still more to discover there. Right, yeah. I, I respect the, the way that it presents itself, uh, having now played the full game. But for a lot of people, I think that those first few loops where there's almost what it feels like an overwhelming amount to do and not like the biggest carrots dangling in front of you, that can be demoralizing, especially since you're going to suck shit at a few things. Once you get a feel for everything, the game becomes a lot better a lot more quickly. You keep like having to have that whole like, okay, look, it's not going to happen now, but eventually I'll make a breakthrough here. And it's going to feel great when you do. And it's going to open up the thing. and It's going to make you understand more. And that's going to be great. But it's, going to, it's obviously going to be a matter of taste. And the way the gamers have been conditioned is also a factor. Instant gratification is a big thing. Accumulating power is a big thing. Feeling like you make progress is a big thing. And just looping back into a world that is exactly the same every single time without uh, you being able to influence it. And it just simply influencing you. That, you know, the dynamic shifting between what is traditional and sense of like i'm making changes to the world because i'm powerful and the game is helpless against me versus like i'm helpless against this game and i have to learn how to navigate through it that's going to be tough i'm excited by that i love that but a lot of people aren't so i think it's not necessarily a flaw so much as like a consideration and i do but i do think that like i wish the game was a bit more encouraging or found a way to be encouraging in a non-disruptive way for those first few loops where it was just trying to get to that like look work at it work at it please yeah yeah Yeah. absolutely you have a podcast that you created uh, additional postage required it's a drama series set in outer space was outer wilds at all an influence on that yeah so (laughs) uh I'm silly. Uh, it is. And I didn't really realize how much it was until I started replaying it a couple a week or two ago in preparation to come on here. Um, I, I have had like a lot of things I've written in my life where I years later go back and realize, oh, that thing was based on a thing that happens in like Legend of Korra or a book I was reading at the time or what have you. Uh, mm-hmm. Stuff that was like inspired by Homestuck because I was a Homestuck teen for a while. Um, God bless you. Yeah, and and Outer Wilds is kind of like that, where, yeah, like, you know, you gave the pitch at the start, uh, additional poses required is about people delivering mail in space, and very specifically, it is like a future where human beings live on like a few dozen planets, but you can't Skype call your family on another planet. Like, it is, every planet is kind of an isolated world, which was, you know, I started writing it during COVID, and so I think that's part of where that came from. But I also think that, like, the the idea of space as a backdrop for communication to kind of warp and change and how people communicate to ch- and change definitely has roots in Outer Wilds. Because again, you are reading, like you, you said text messages earlier, you are reading these spirals of text written by different Nomai explorers where one person will write a message that's in this big spiral on like a stone wall or a tablet and another will write their response, branching off in its own spiral. And so you're just picturing these, you know, these these people coming, walking by a wall and going, oh, my friend left something for me. I, I think that idea of, you know, again, like of, of a place that is actively being explored and stopped at and left at such a frequency, changing the way that the people who live in it and live around it communicate with each other. I, I think really stuck in my head when I was writing additional postage required, the fact that it's about people who uh, can touch their mail and hear the conversations 
tied to the people who that male is for or from like definitely has roots in the way that the characters who you're reading the conversations from communicate with each other. Like it, there, there's voyeurship to it, right? Like Clem in APR is a voyeur. Your character in Outer Wilds is a voyeur to what this entire group of people was doing. Uh, I, I think there's definitely, definitely roots there. Um, also the, the, the finale will be out by the time this goes out. So I can say this, uh, Clem also plays an instrument. Like I, I really liked you were talking about it earlier, but the fact that the Outer Wilds Ventures Explorer, you know, aren't just their jobs. They have lives. One of them plays a banjo. One of them plays a, a harmonica, et cetera, et cetera. I use a Dobro, which is a, a like sl- steel slide guitar uh, that I have from my dad. My dad plays banjo and Dobro and a bunch of other instruments. I grew up with music around me a lot. I use that for the sound effects in APR. When the letter opener is activating, there is this uh, series of just like these sort of like echoey notes. That is all from me just playing notes on the Dobro into the microphone. And Clem, uh, you'll hear them do it at the end of the first season of APR, plays the Dobro. It is something that, like, after this final adventure ends, they sort of, like, pull off from under the, the, the console of their ship and dust off and open up and play a little thing on for the first time in a very long time. And, and I think the idea of, like, a musical instrument as a symbol of someone's life and passions outside of work, outside of the main thing they do really stuck with me from this game too that's very very good thank you for explaining all that to me i love that yeah no i love to see the way that people have like conscious and unconscious influences on it like for me i was able to like when you presented to me as outer wilds as one of the games you wanted to talk about that like connection was immediately apparent to me because like oh you do a additional postage require uh, the music yeah. for that is very like outer wilds adjacent yeah. it makes total sense to me uh, but like you, you talking about like i didn't really necessarily make that full connection until i went back and replayed it for the show it's kind of like oh wow okay because well, when you're because like when you're writing something, you get so in your head about it, right? right? That you will translate. I like this is why, like you know, people who say some derivativity, de- derivativity, de- things that are derivative. Uh, th- that is a like quality that is used against media more than it deserves to be made. Because everything is inspired by something. Everything sure. is influenced by something, right? Like it's, it's additional a, everything builds required. off each other. Yeah. Yeah, additional postage required is also based on a manga called Tagami Bachi that I read when I was 13 and haven't gotten out of my head ever since. Everything mm-hmm. you'll ever absorb is inspired by things around Outer Wilds is inspired by Majora's Mask. That's always going to be there. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes when you're in the thick of it, you don't even notice the homage you're paying until you really step back and 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 look at it. Sure. And I think it's also a testament to how like impactful that work is on you, because if it isn't necessarily conscious, it's just like kind of in your heart, not necessarily in your brain. Yeah, it's 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 a passionate feeling it's leaving inside you. It's an impression that isn't totally present in a in a conscious way, but is with you kind of forever. And I, I, I think part of you. Yeah, it's beautiful. That's was like the crux of me wanting to make this series It's like making the connections between art, trying to find those conscious connections and the influences on your life. So using that as like a jumping board for this next question, what other impact would you say this game has made on you besides, you know, your act of creation? Um, yeah, I mean, l- l- like I said earlier, it's really like, it is, it has gotten me to appreciate open world games a lot more like that. That is a very gamer answer after a lot of existential conversation for the last hour. But like, that is really a huge part of it is that I see the mechanisms differently now. Like, mm-hmm. I, I look at an open world game like a Breath of the Wild or, you know, I, I haven't touched that many open world games since Outer Wilds. When I've even looked at ones my friends have played, I have not touched the Horizon games, but I, I 
had a roommate who was playing through uh, the first one who I, I watched play through it. And like, I, I can see the pieces at work in a way that I can appreciate a lot more now. Uh, and that, and that means a lot to me. I also, you know, I, we were talking about it earlier, but like, because outer wilds is such a mechanism of you die, however you die, you uncover whatever you uncover. The story becomes your story in so many ways. I have found myself feeling that way that I was talking about that. I, I, heard people talk about with Bethesda games with the Witcher 3 with all these other open world games and I it just never clicked for me now I am playing Breath of the Wild and playing through the rest of the Breath of the Wild and I'm like I have one particular horse stable that I feel a lot of affection towards because mm-hmm. I was just around that area in the game for a long time going back it's the one year Thunderhead Plateau like just I was there for a while trying to catch a horse trying to do the the tower that's surrounded by a lake with lightning wizards all over it like <laughs> I I feel more affection towards that area because of that. And like, I, I understand I am thinking more about the story in terms of it being my story rather than a story that an author wrote and put there than I feel like I ever have. I feel like any game I play now, I think about like my role as a co-author. That sounds very egotistical, but like, no. y- you know, l- like you are a co-writer for your own story through any video game. And I, I, I see that a lot more now than I ever did before. No, I mean, like, it's not necessarily egotistical in interactive space, right? Because it's all about, like, no matter what, like, I mean, like, we talk about, like, oh, this game isn't, like, necessarily the traditional power fantasy, but it is experiential, and it is about your control at the end of the day. So it is just about your relationship with the interactive, and it's not egotistical to call you a co-author. It is just like, you know, here is a space I created for you, what will you make of that? Yeah. When you make an open world and you make it enriching, that's that's great. And I think what you're getting at, like, you know, you said like, oh, you know, I'm giving a gamer answer uh, instead of like a, you know, more mindful answer, you know, in terms of like how this, you know, has affected my life and my relationship with art, et cetera. And then you just talk about it in terms of like a gamer space. I mean, what you're talking about is like enrichment in a hobby. This game enriched your relationship with open world games. And now you can appreciate them at a different level. So, I mean, like, it's you shouldn't be so dismissive and call it egotistical yeah. or like a no, game you're, answer. You're right. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. that's great. I, I think those are fantastic qualities to get out of a game. I, th- I think so. I think all my punishing times flying into the sun have made me a little too self-judgmental is what I've learned here. <laughs> sure, you, you have to take that lesson of like, I, you know, I ain't shit on some yeah. level. But like, yeah, you can't yeah. like internal, like the aim isn't like saying like you aren't shit. It's just like you have a lot to learn. Yeah. Um, which has been a great relationship to have with art, you know, knowing that I will never know everything, God, having yes. the, setting out the goal when I have these episodes, like making them conversational with an individual. So I don't necessarily feel the need to cover everything and be educational, but just sort of to learn from somebody else and get a different perspective on a piece. That's all part of that. You don't want to feel yeah. in control of a piece of media. You don't want to feel ownership of something else that something else created, but you do want to have a relationship with it. And yeah, that, that's important. And that this game has enhanced your relationship with things beyond itself. And that's fantastic. At the end of the day, you leave every loop in Outer Wilds equipped with knowledge you didn't have when you started it. And at the end of the day, I left Outer, Walli- Outer Wilds, Outer Wilds, <laughs> I left Outer Wilds with knowledge I had that I didn't have before I started playing. Yeah. So that covers all my general questions about this beautiful, beautiful video game. And I think we had a wonderful, wonderful discussion of it. Was there anything else you wanted to say about the game? Uh, before we moved on to the end here? Not really. I mean, its sound design is really cool. We talked about the single yeah. scope briefly. I think 
like playing it entirely with headphones on let me tell you like it really or just with like a good sound like a really good sound system i'm sure you get the same effect like fuck like when you die in space and suffocate i had that just in my ears right because i'm just playing with headphones stuff like that really impacted me um the siren sound that you found the you find these downed escape pods around space that have this distress signal the like two-tone I, I i can't do it you'll play it over this so i don't need to do my awful impression of it but like the like sound of that is written in my brain forever for whatever reason it's just a really distinct sound i think the like melancholy of the song you hear when a loop is about to end is really like distinct and has the right amount of urgency and sadness and kind of hope to it uh yeah i think this game sounds incredible i think this game sounds really fucking good no i'm glad he gave it some consideration of time at the end because i did mention at the top not at the top like at the beginning of the discussion part of this episode that the sound is incredible but we were talking so much about like the thematic <laughs> and the, the interactive that we didn't really get to talk about like that the soundscape is incredible sound everybody involved in the sound design and the music should be proud of the work that they did because it is so distinct and beautiful and well done. Yeah, we're we're talking about the, the soundtrack's beautiful, and meanwhile, we're sounding like Margot Robbie in the Barbie trailer, being like, you guys ever think about dying? <laughs> too much. Too much now because of this game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jay, for talking about this beautiful game with me. I love the discussion that we have. At the end of each episode, we set aside time to make recommendations to our listeners based on a discussion that we had. And it doesn't have to be limited to video games. You can recommend any kind of media. Jay, what would you recommend to people who enjoy games like Outer Wilds? Yeah, I love that you encourage people to give a few recommendations because I certainly have a few. I have a few games and a few movies. Kiefer, you ever hear about a game called Breath of the Wild? Heard of it? <laughs> no, but re- really, like Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom, I think are games I would recommend because something else that like I came away from Outer Wilds with is like, a better understanding of how to like test the boundaries of a game that gives you physics and tools in that kind of way. And those obviously both do that. I would also say if you're like me and you tried Breath of the Wild in 2017, 2018, bounced off it, come back to it. I'm not saying play Outer Wilds and then you will have the, the key that will allow you to unlock Kingdom Hearts that will allow you to like understand everything, right? But like we change. Sometimes years later, you come back to a game and you you appreciate it. Uh, in a way you didn't. So one of my recommendations is do that for yourself if that applies to you. I also want to recommend talking about the Outer Wilds solar system as a like really incredibly tightly designed space and series of spaces. Uh, Resident Evil 2, specifically the Resident Evil 2 remake, because that's the way I played it. Uh, the police station in Resident Evil 2, I think is, this is not a controversial opinion, is one of the most well-designed singular spaces in any video game of all time. I, I think just like, how it sort of folds in on itself, the way that parts of puzzles in one place direct you to other parts of the house. Like, just the way it directs you between its parts and becomes more than the sum of that parts and handles these horrific encounters. Once Mr. X shows up, the entire house is recontextualized and you have to think about hiding places and escape routes and the way it, like, lends itself to that new threat is just as good as everything it does before that. Incredibly designed. You mentioned that you hadn't uh, played um, Kentucky Route, or I'm sorry, you mentioned that you were playing Kentucky Route Zero. I have that written down too as a recommendation. Kentucky Route Zero, I think from a narrative perspective, is like a little bit in conversation with Outer Wilds in some ways. It is very much a game, uh, Kentucky Route, just to give the quick pitch to those who haven't really heard of it, 
it is an indie game that at the start you are playing as a delivery person trying to reach uh, this sort of fabled Route Zero in the state of Kentucky to deliver a package. You and a person you're with who you meet and other people you kind of meet along the way traverse this increasingly sort of metaphysical space that is Route Zero and embark on this adventure that winds up being very much about like, uh, to not spoil it for you because you're still playing it and just to not spoil it for anyone, it's very much a game about like the places where people get on and off the train in life or get on and off the delivery truck in life, maybe. Um, and kind of what circumstances pull them off and put them on. Uh, and I really loved how it handled that. And I, th- and that made me feel some kind of adjacent things to what outer wilds, uh, makes me feel a couple of movies. I do want to talk about one, one kind of silly one, uh, is dark star. The very first John Carpenter movie, mm-hmm. uh, is a movie about some guys who are uh, their job is they fly around space destroying planets with a big laser beam. You were talking about that college age philosophy about the universe. It is very much entrenched in that, and it's a little bit cheesy about it, but I just really like it for that. Interstellar. Uh, if you have not seen Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, Interstellar is super in conversation with Outer Wilds because a lot like Outer Wilds, it is it is about going out into space and using what you kind of learn there to in some way affects the future. I would kind of say that like, uh, if, if Outer Wilds is about accepting that you cannot stop the end of the universe, but maybe you can do some part to usher in or at the very least celebrate the birth of a new one. Interstellar is like if what's happening to the universe in Outer Wilds was just happening to Earth and kind of uses a lot of the same dialect to talk about like, using knowledge of the universe not to be able to control the universe around you but to like take that next step take that step that allows you and humanity to continue to survive uh maybe once the earth is gone uh it also has like some of the most incredible uh depictions of space in terms of like velocity and scale that i've ever seen in a film um christopher nolan makes some pretty dang good movies in it uh, <laughs> he's done a he's done a few good ones. I'm a little hot and cold. I'm a tenant disrespecter, but I am certainly an interstellar respecter. Gotta gotta respect the craft at the end of the day, even if like, some of the stuff's clunky. Absolutely. And then uh finally Contact, the 1997 uh Robert Zemeckis movie, the director of uh you know, Back to the Future and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I but both Dark Star and Contact I watched because of Blank Check, the movie podcast that you and I I know you and I both listen to. Mm-hmm. Uh I think Contact is just fucking lovely. It's a movie I watched and I couldn't believe it is not more talked about still than it is. It stars Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey. So in Outer Wilds, you have this revelation. You sort of learn that the Nomai were tracking the eye of the universe, right? It's effectively, you know, God, center of the universe, whatever you want to call it, is what they were trying to get in contact with. That is what Contact, the movie, is very much also about. It is about scientists who get what they believe is a message from beyond the stars. Uh, from an alien civilization and it is from a science perspective but also from a faith perspective because Matthew McConaughey's character is kind of from a more religious perspective involved with conversations about like communicating with the edges of the universe it it combines the idea of talking with alien life with the idea of reaching God in a way like I, I am not a very religious person there are not a lot of centrally religious stories that necessarily uh, you know, there are ones that resonate for me, but it is not necessarily a topic that I have a lot of personal rooting in. But I, I really love the way Contact intersects those two ideas 
And I think it's really in conversation with how the Outer Wilds is kind of about like pursuing the end of the un the, the eye of the universe, the sort of center of the universe, and what it actually means to do that, and whether or not you'll actually be satisfied with what you find, and whether or not that even matters at the end of the day. Uh, so contact gets a huge uh, lift up from me here. Okay, thank you so much for those recommendations. As for myself, I just have four recommendations, a video game, two movies, and a book. Very quickly, getting the obvious one out of the way, Majora's Mask, highly influential game in terms of like the time loop as a video game mechanic, very influential in my life, connects very strongly with Outer Wilds thematically, atmospherically, juggles a lot of tones, a lot of attitudes, a lot of different prevailing ideas about an inevitable apocalypse that keeps repeating itself over and over. Definitely something to keep in mind. Uh, I have a lot to talk about with this game and I'll be able and I'm very excited to talk about it in the future, but won't harp on that right now. That's for a future conversation at a different time. As for my movie recommendations, there are countless movies that indulge in the Groundhog Day kind of time loop. The first one I'll recommend is Edge of Tomorrow, uh, a sci-fi action film starring Tom Cruise, Emily Blunt, and Bill Paxton. It's based on the Japanese light novel All You Need Is Kill. Tom Cruise plays a PR officer who is forced to fight off an invading alien force and finds himself stuck in the time loop. He is sort of like using the knowledge of the battle and slowly gaining more and more combat experience from Emily's Blunt character. He is working as best as he can to turn a tide of battle. Uh, it goes a lot of weird places, and it doesn't really thematically connect with Outer Wilds very much, but playing Outer Wilds motivated me to finally watch this after years of putting it off, and I'm so glad I watched it. Great flick. Feels underseen, weirdly. Uh, so seek it out if you can. Uh, it rips. Just a great, great action film with a really cool. Um, central premise uh chris mcquarrie who does like the the later era mission impossible films from four onward and directs the most recent ones he wrote uh, this movie and it it, it shows there's sure. a really good just really good action sensibilities in it yeah i didn't know that but that makes a lot of sense huh. very much worth watching uh also going to recommend uh palm springs starring uh andy sandberg <laughs> yeah. uh kristen Sorry. miliotti and uh jk simmons a uh, sci-fi rom-com film where two strangers meet at a wedding and get stuck in a time loop. This also goes a lot of weird places, really explores the existential horror of getting stuck in even the most mundane kind of time loop. Uh, but it's a great film about overcoming nihilism, even what feels like a hopeless situation. Uh, like Outer Wilds, it is also about self-determination and knowledge accumulation as tools to overcome obstacles. It's a great flick. Its initial release could not have been more timely as it came out in the early months of the pandemic when despair was at an all-time high. Stream it on Hulu. <laughs> Last recommendation and the one that I am most excited to recommend, uh, one of my favorite books of all time, Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, Slaughterhouse-Five isn't a time loop story per se, at least not in a traditional sense, uh, but the novel's protagonist, Billy Pilgrim, is a time traveler and experiences time in a non-linear way. Uh, Billy Pilgrim is a soldier in World War II who refuses to fight because he abhors war. Uh, he is captured by the Germans and made a prisoner of war and becomes unstuck in time, as the book describes it, uh, meaning he will suddenly move forward in time or relive moments from his past. He knows how the future is going to play out. He knows how old he will be when he dies. He knows what the rest of his life is going to look like. And he knows just the exact moment when, where, how he dies. So it goes. Uh, it's an incredible novel, one I want tattooed all over my body. It's it's not a traditional time loop story, but I think that both Outer Wilds and Slaughterhouse-Five have some really profound things to say about life, culture, 
and death. And I think that's where the two pair really well together as sort of like companions with each other. I watched all of these things and read Slaughterhouse-Five all within like two years of each other. Oh, wow. A lot of this stuff at the early side of the pandemic, like Palm Springs and uh, Slaughterhouse-Five and then uh, into 2021 for um, Edge of Tomorrow and Outer Wilds. Uh, So yeah, I think all this stuff is like very contained in this very specific era of my life. And all connects in a very weird way, especially since it's all thematically connected together. The only thing that is like has always been a part of my life is Majora's Mask, which is probably why I love all of these things so fucking much. That's the root. That's 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 your Pokemon. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things as my Pokemon, but as far as like, <laughs> this specific narrative, yeah, no, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. definitely Majora's Mask in terms of like taste and what I want out of certain pieces of media. Jay. It was truly, truly wonderful to talk to you about a game I also hold very near and dear to my heart. Before you go, please promote the hell out of yourself. I would love to. So the podcast we've talked about a bit, uh, additional postage required. I said at the top, it's the hardest I've ever worked on anything in my life. Uh, It is an audio drama, sci-fi, 10 episode season. 10th and final episode will be out by the time this is going out. Starring uh, Kai Swanson and a whole bunch of other lovely people. Some folks who are on the Moonshot Podcast Network. Uh, you can find additional postage required wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, it, it's not about time loops, but like, I don't know. You've heard me talk for two and a half hours. If you think you'd like a sci-fi story I wrote, that's a lot about um, the, the ways in which people connect to each other and the ways in which people decide to or decide not to commit to the people they care about and sort of like what paths that leads them down uh and also just fun sci-fi adventures like a haunted house or a murder mystery on a sci-fi vessel in an acid sea uh you'll probably like it so listen to that uh i also do a lot of stuff at the moonshot podcast network i am sort of one of our co-creator people like i said at the top i do a lot of work on stuff that goes onto the moonshot patreon so if you're uh a listener to some moonshot shows and you don't follow the patreon consider it we've got you know champs in the making which i am hosting uh, the June episodes of which star uh, myself and three members of Additional Postage Required's cast talking about, you know, whether Delibird knows that what it does is a job and things and how far you could throw Cryagonal and things like that. And then you find me on Twitter at Extreme Salsing on Twitter, on Tumblr, on Letterboxd. Any, if you find an Extreme Salsing, it is probably me. It would be strange if it wasn't. Please report that to me so I can call the authorities as needed and do to them what Twitter did to Kiefer's Twitter this morning. Yeah. Don't want to talk about <laughs> <Sorry>. it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's all but right. Yeah, that's where you can find me. Yeah, definitely follow Jay. Their work is incredible. Uh, thank you again so much for making time to be on my show. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of Select and Start. Once again, I am your host, editor and promoter Kiefer. If you enjoyed this episode, please give the show a positive review wherever you're listening to this. Engagement helps the show, and your feedback will improve it. And if you want to get more engaged, give the show a follow on Twitter at SelectPodStart. If you have thoughts about Outer Wilds or any other games we've discussed, send a DM or leave a comment, and I will gladly read it on the show. You can also support me on Patreon. If you pledge at least $1 a month, you'll get early access to new episodes as well as extended episodes with exclusive content. You can also find a link to the rest of my projects in the description of this episode. Select to Start is on the Moonshot Network, which is supported by its own Patreon. Find out more on MoonshotPods.com. The art for this show is made by my best friend, Avery Ott. You can follow him on social media with the handle at AveryRobinOtte. That's A-V-R-Y, Robin, O-T-T. You can check out the links in the description for his work as well as Jay's. All right. I think that's it. 